What's up, man? Not a whole lot. Just hanging out on a cool, almost winter day. I'd say we're well past winter. It's been 20 for like the last week. Is it still like 20-something outside? Uh, it's like 33. It's been fucking miserable. I love it. Well, yeah, you work indoors. I'm also tired of being hot all the time. <laughs> like, why is every, why's the sun always got to be so mean? Why do I always have to wear a three-piece suit to work? I don't wear a three-piece suit. Oh, yeah, it's a you two do. Piece. You wear a three-piece suit, and you wear the long overcoat with, like, a pocket watch and a striped fedora. I know your style. I know your steez. Uh, I don't do any of that. I Internally, I mock those people. Do you? When somebody shows up with a three-piece suit and uh, a chain that goes from their vest pocket to their button, mm-hmm. and they've got their tweed hat yeah. that they carry around, um, and I'm talking about a specific person. Uh, is this a specific I, I judge attorney that. you encounter? I judge that harshly. I remember your cousin when he had that little incident trying to outrun the cops in, uh, was it the Jeep? Yeah. His mom's Jeep? I remember he was bragging to me about uh, how lenient the judge was on him because he wore a three-piece suit to court. I was like, you probably looked like a fucking idiot. Well, I think the the judge had decided that it wasn't the three-piece suit. It was the fact that he didn't wear shorts to court. Mm. Uh, because... You know, a lot of times that's an achievement is just somebody not wearing shorts. Now, should that make a difference? No. You yeah. Know, that, the people who are getting in trouble generally don't have a wardrobe budget. Yeah. Well, there's always the classic court day polo with the horizontal stripes. You know what I'm talking about, the court day polo? Yeah, no, I, I see it all the time. <laughs> I'm kind of embarrassed that, like, the only suit I own is pinstriped, but I got it when I was, like, 15. And I shouldn't have been allowed to dictate my own fashion at that age. No. And I'll tell you what's funny is... Uh, when somebody's like, hey, I can't afford a lawyer, if they dress too nice, a judge will look at them and go, well, you can afford that shirt. You can afford an attorney. <laughs> and it's like, that's a champion polo yeah. from J.C. Penney <laughs> that Dude, he's that... probably either got at Goodwill or had for years. It's sharp, dog. It's a champion polo. <laughs> it's like, don't do not do this. Like, just... Or it's like a, like a $15 J.C. Penney Van Hoosen button-up. Yeah, it's like, how... How does this tell you that this person has enough money to hire a lawyer? Man, Van Hoosen got me through all my high school dances. Yeah, I mean, that's what it's there for. Welcome back to another episode of The Snob and The Scent Presents. I'm your host, Matt. And I'm your host, Michael. And today we're going to be talking about two 70s uh, classic car films, 1971's Vanishing Point and 1971's Two-Lane Blacktop. But before we get into that, Michael, what have you been watching this week, bud? So, this week I've swapped it up a little bit. Oh, yeah? Finally watching One Punch Man. Oh, really? You've never seen it before? I've watched part of it and liked it, and then I just got distracted and never finished. Mm-hmm. So I've been watching that. Um, I've only seen the first season, but I loved it. I'm in the second, and it's so good. 
Um, and then I'm also watching Initial D. Yeah, you were telling me about that. And you're a car guy, and that pertains to this episode. What do you think of Initial D so far? I think it's actually phenomenal. Yeah? Is it kind of dated just from when it came out? But there's been, like, multiple series, hasn't there? Or is there just the one? There's... I, I'm not exactly sure how it all breaks down. I know there are multiple seasons, for lack of a better term. I don't know how much better the production quality gets. Yeah. Um, it's... It's like the animation's worse than Yu Yu Hakusho. Yeah. Um, the car scenes are a little weird because they're... It's like PS1 graphics. It's just kind of like boxy yeah. 3D renderings. Yeah. But overall, like technical detail, they do hill to toe when they're when they're shifting. So they've got, you know, part of their foot's on the gas and brake and the other foot's on the clutch. And so it's, it's true three-pedal driving. Mm-hmm. And it's just really impressive, the detail they put in it. And, you know, I think in the the manga, they put up the spec sheets for all the cars. Oh, yeah. And so it's it's a real technical show. Is it a lot of, like, uh, Japanese domestic market cars, stuff that we don't get? Yeah, it's all JDM. That's what I figured. I uh, know, like, the, like, main car in the show is, uh, what is it, a Toyota? Yeah, it's basically a Corolla. Oh, wow. Yeah, it kind of looks like a hatchback, from what I remember, the black and white one. Yeah, it's, uh, so it's a, I don't know what the, their names are different for the cars in yeah. the, um, I think in Japan it's a little different, but it's basically a Toyota Corolla, it, what would be a Toyota Corolla in the U.S. market, and so the episode I just watched, he was racing the GTR, mm-hmm. which is a, a pretty cool car for him to race. That's a Nissan, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so they're talking about the, the technical aspects of using a car like the 8.6 and like floored the entire way. The car is not fast, but maintaining the highest speed possible through every single curve. And that's like the beauty of drifting is he's able to just not lose speed because of his super aggressive driving style. And then when he races the GTR, the GTR is, uh, you know, turboed, it's all wheel drive. So his plan is I'll brake hard into the corners and then I'll come flying out and I'll mm-hmm. accelerate him every single time and he won't be able to catch me. And so it's just a, a technical analysis of of why people value drifting so much. That's pretty cool. I know that show is like considered like one of the goat animes of all time, but it's like especially important to people that are into that Japanese drifting scene. I know the mountain that they're drifting down is an actual location that's famous for that. Yeah, I think there are several mountains like that in in Japan, uh, it's a pretty the idea of doing that myself like scares the <laughs> shit out of me. It's a pretty like interesting history of how I think drifting came to rise in, in in culture. But that being said, the the technical aspects of everything that go into it, and just kind of the the allusions to the the real life people who are doing these things, it's all really top notch. And then the rest of the time when they're not in the car, there's nothing really exciting going on with the anime, but it's so well written. Mm-hmm. that you're you're engrossed in it. Yeah, it's also kind of like a slice of life, like growing up character type story. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, high schoolers figuring out who they are, uh, dating. One, one guy buys a car that he thinks is an 8.6, but it's actually an 8.5, which they explain the difference between the two, being the 8.6 is a dual overhead cam and the 8.5 is a single overhead cam. And it's just... He's humiliated because he bought the wrong car because he's an idiot. He got the pinstripe but, suit. But to be fair, most people wouldn't know the difference between a dual overhead cam and a, and a single overhead cam. I wouldn't. It's all court day polos to me. Yeah, I mean, it's it's 
inter- like it's an interesting thing for them to point out. Yeah. Because when you know mechanical stuff, it's like, oh, that's that is a big difference. Like there there's a difference between those two things and especially in that kind of engine, but it's just fascinating that the work that goes into the production of each episode is apparent. Yeah, I imagine you got kind of a similar appreciation to it being a car hobbyist that I would have watching like the hand animations on something like Metalocalypse or uh, there was this other uh, music anime I really liked called uh, Mongolian Chop Squad. Yeah, I, th- I think when you can appreciate the the nuance of what they're doing, it really helps. And so to a lot of people, you know, it's probably just a a show about drifting mm-hmm. but i think if you like cars or you can appreciate uh, race styles you can watch it and go you you can watch it and appreciate what they're doing for what they're doing mm-hmm. so uh, honestly it's it's pretty phenomenal and back to a uh, one punch man uh are you on the second season or did you just finish the first season i'm on the second one okay i haven't seen it yet uh have you watched the author's other show mob psycho 100 i've seen uh Portions of Mob Psycho 100, and I've always liked it, too. Yeah, I really love the first season of that. That's another one I haven't watched the second season, but the first season is so good. That might be one of my favorite seasons of anime, period. But it just gives the show there's an anime for everybody, for every hobby. Yeah, and I will say, the beauty of One Punch Man is is that it subverts, yeah. you know, all shonen anime so well. Yeah. And it, it does it just flawlessly really it's it's top tier like action animation with like this humor that undercuts all of it at every given chance in just the funniest way possible yeah i mean it's it's a direct contradiction to you know goku going super saiyan for the first time for three episodes yeah and you know he just the what episode i watched was just he... like an indifferent chud <laughs> you know on on one punch man the thing he did in the last episode was serious side jumps mm-hmm <laughs> Which caused, like, massive damage to the area around him. Well, if he and refers to one of his moves as serious, then shit's about to go down. But in the end, he's just, he's like, I don't know what was so impressive about what I did. I just did side jumps. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, it's just, it's awesome. Because uh, it's... I think he calls one of his moves when he kills, like, one of the main big monster bosses, uh, consecutive normal punches. <laughs> uh I think that one, I think he said consecutive serious punches. Oh, never mind then. Um, I didn't realize the ante had been upped. And I think that's like in the first season, right? When he's fighting that alien boss. My still, my favorite moment from the whole first season, I think it's in the first couple episodes where he kills the mosquito lady. And it's just like a, I mean, (laughs) the way they animate the slap, he just swats her like an actual mosquito. (laughs) Yes. I mean, everything about it is, it's, it's comical at every turn. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also just, it's also a really good action anime. Yeah. And it's crazy that it didn't come from a manga, it came from a webcomic that's very like poorly drawn if you look up like the old panels, but the humor is so good that it was able to compel this, I think it's Bones Studio that makes One Punch Man, I could be wrong with that, it might be Madhouse, but uh, yeah, just the animation is so over the top, mixed with this very like sardonic humor. Yeah, it's... Is it, sardar- sardonic the right word for that? Probably not. I don't Deadpan, know. Deadpan, maybe. I don't know. Um, It's... The humor is very heavy-handed mm-hmm. in that. Well, he's got heavy-ass hands, and it's anticlimactic. Yeah, you know that's it's it's just really cool that they've got it where when he has to punch something more than once, you're like, oh shit, mm-hmm. it's about to get real. Then he just goes, all right, let me put in like one seri- percent more effort. <laughs> serious punch. Yeah, oh. there's no power ups or anything. He just does what he trained in his living room to do mm-hmm. a little bit harder. 
back to the, like the driving and drifting talk. Can you recount that NASCAR story you were telling me yesterday about the guy that just like drove straight into the wall intentionally? He Mario Karted his shit. Yeah, let me let me do this right. Do you remember the driver's name, or is that what you're looking up? I'm gonna look it up. Okay, I guess I probably should be talking right now to <laughs> buy you some time. No, I'm sure we'll just edit that part out. Man, or leave it in, whatever. I don't know, maybe. Oh, this is the first time we're recording in mono. I noticed that earlier. I wasn't going to say anything. I just figured you'd wisened up. Well, recording in stereo wasn't the worst thing because I would always convert it back to mono. Just having the two separate tracks like visibly in front of me made it a little easier to edit, but I don't think it's going to make that much of a difference. I think I might be able to edit quicker in mono. Seems like in stereo you could edit when we were both talking at the same time a little bit more. Hmm. But it's uh, so his name's Ross Chastain, and this is a race back from October 30th. And he just what's so what's so cool about it is, you know, NASCAR, people watch it for the wrecks or whatever, but they spend a lot of time developing those cars not to crash. Mm -hmm. And they do crash not to be damaged uh, in a way that kills the driver. And here he comes just like, hey, if I need if I'm going to place into the next stage, I've got to pass X number of people. And the way I'm driving right now, I can't do it. But when I played this game back in the 90s, the move we would use is we would slam into the wall right at the turn full throttle and just use the wall to turn us as we go full speed. And so, sure enough, he's like, ah, what do I got to lose? Some need for speed arcade type shit. <laughs> and so he just puts the hammer down and flies into the wall and just forces his car to turn and just shoots past everybody and manages to get in the place he needs to pass. And I know NASCAR's got to be furious about that. Well, yeah, he intentionally earnhearted. <laughs> you know, and one of, the, one of the interesting things about that is... The main driver in Tokyo Drift does a very similar thing. The boy from uh, Sling Blade (laughs) and Crazy in Alabama. I I don't know. That's him grown up. It's the little boy from Sling Blade in Tokyo Drift. No, I'm sorry. I meant to say Initial D. Oh, sorry. That's what I meant to say. (laughs) Sorry, Initial D. Um, one of the cur- one of the things he does. Don't talk is- about my daddy like that, Doyle. <laughs> he knows the the road so well that he there's a drop off on the side of the road where the curb is, and he will drop his wheels off one side of that, lock them into the road, and f- basically put his car on a track so that he can go around curves at full speed. And that's almost exactly what happened in the NASCAR race. Like he's putting one set of tires like in a ditch. It's not a ditch so much as it's like the road has a little bit of a drop down and like a concrete piece that would be part of the shoulder okay and so he drops it off of the asphalt and just locks it into the edge of the asphalt and the car's on a track and it just scoots him around the corner so he's like riding like the rumble strip no it's not a rumble strip it's a drop off okay like the road drops off into this concrete area that's part of the shoulder Hmm. but the asphalt's higher so he drops it down and basically the inside edge of uh his wheel locks into the edge of the asphalt and keeps him from popping out. So he just kind of locks into a rail and mm-hmm. shoots around. And then when he gets to the other side, he just drives straight out of it and goes, uh, it's it's actually pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, what's that streaming on? Uh, Initial D? Yeah. Um, I'm watching it on Crunchyroll. Okay. And then, of course, I'm One Punch Man's on Crunchyroll too, but I think I'm watching it on Hulu. Mm-hmm. I know there's a couple Initial D live action movies. Maybe in a future episode we can compare one of those to fucking Tokyo Drift. Oh, God. I'm, Tokyo Drift is trash. It's It's got a, a fun soundtrack. It's like, Tokyo, Tokyo, Tokyo. <laughs> I will say the outro to Initial D is so weird. 
Like they, the ending theme? or Yeah, the outro song and the, the like, credits. Because they just have, like, the live band members who are performing the song. They just have clips of them. So you're watching it animated, yeah. and there's just this live action thing. And that's also something from one of the earlier episodes of Initial D. They were watching drifting videos, and so they're watching the little animated TV. But on the TV is real-life drifting. So it's it's animated, and then you're just watching... <laughs> live footage of a car drifting and it's <laughs> it's very yeah. just it causes a, a lot of uh of dissonance yeah like you're you're kind of going like look i know that that this is animated but when you put the live action right in there with it it's jolting mm. it seems like there's like maybe four japanese bands that do all the anime themes it's always beat crusaders orange range Duran gray or like uh i actually can't remember who does the one punch man theme but it's a band similar to that yeah i've never thought about it but they are very similar mm-hmm. well i love Duran gray and they've done a couple anime themes uh oh wait uh asian kung fu generation that's a big one i think they did some of the naruto themes and they did a uh, the theme for erased which is like a really good like one season anime if you're into like butterfly effect it's very similar to that i think i've told you about it in the past you may have i I recall that but i would chime in to say that your phone's on yeah sorry about that i'm gonna mute that real quick what a rookie yeah i know i mean i should be abiding like all film rules right now turn your cell phone off lest i have nicole kidman screech at me (laughs) Well, she doesn't even have to screech. That woman can cut you in half with a stare. I've never been impressed with Nicole Kidman. Really? You didn't turn your ringer off. You just turned the volume down. How do I... Go back to your volume. You see that bell at the top? Uh... That's your notification volume. Okay. Well, that's taken care of. Thanks, Grandpa. Uh, anything else you watched this week you want to talk about? I... I think that's about uh, about it. Mm-hmm. I'm what about you? Besides keeping up with basketball, uh, I watched Nope last night for the first time. The new Jordan Peele. Have you seen it yet? Is that the third Jordan Peele? Yes. I have not seen it. It's on a Peacock right now. I liked it. I don't think it's as good as Get Out or Us, but it's an interesting take on like UFO movies. Uh, it stars Daniel Kaluuya, who starred in Get Out, but I loved him in uh, Judas and the Black Messiah's Fred Hampton. Have you seen Judas and the Black Messiah? I have not. We need to do that one week, because that movie is great, and I think you'd really like it. Well, I, I'm hesitant, but I'll take your word for it. If you think I'll like it, then I'll give it a shot. Are you hesitant because I said it, you? I think you'll like it, or are you hesitant because of... I'm hesitant because you said it was great. Oh, well, yeah, I guess. Well, where where have I steered you wrong thus far? Um, you made me watch Bad Boy Bubby. You loved it. I didn't. You did love Bad Boy Bubby. I didn't. Um, I can't think of too many off the top of my head. You can't, like, put Enemy at the Gates on me, because I put it there to be bad on purpose. And I'm not going to blame you for Midsommar, because I watched that independently. Here we fucking go, man. <laughs> I'm this not is, gonna, I'm not putting that on you. This is going to be the most contentious episode we've recorded so far. <laughs> I'm not going to put that trash. I feel movie like each on you. episode we've gotten a little more pissy with each other. Uh, back to the NBA. I mean, Grizzlies kind of middling right now. I mean, they're still one of the top teams in the West, but they could be doing better. But they're having. They got Triple J back. They got Jaron Jackson Jr. He's definitely contributing to the interior defense in a way that's been absent. But we're also seeing a lot of uh, open looks on the perimeter defense that I think could be avoided. You know, I haven't kept up with basketball this week. Um, Also, Desmond Bain's out with a toe injury, so they're lacking a little offense. But what, they're 10-6? and That sounds about right. 
Yeah, they're losing a lot. A ten and six isn't bad. I mean, especially since the teams that are ahead of them are like eleven and five. It's like not a significant gap. Well, they're playing the Nets today at six, and Nets are seven to nine. Yeah, the Nets have been real shitty. But then again, you know, same thing that's always gone on with the Nets for the last four years is fucking personality problems. You know, Kyrie's still not playing. Well, he can't right now. But uh, the starting five with Kevin Durant is laughable right now and i don't mean to make fun of those like veteran role player guys they're all decent but they shouldn't be starting i mean uh did i tell you their coach steve nash just quit yeah i think you did yeah because at that level you're not really coaching you're just managing personalities and he had the toughest personalities to manage also you got bitch simmons coming off the bench now yeah well hopefully um hopefully it'd be a good game yeah i'm not planning on watching it but hopefully this might just be like the first season where I've had expectations for the Grizzlies and that's why I'm being a little more critical than usual because for the last couple seasons you know they were a young team so anything they did was overachieving to me but now I I expect a championship caliber team out of them and they might not be there yet you know funny enough uh in sports related news um did you hear about Todd Downing uh who's that the Titans offensive coordinator stopped for DUI oh word (laughs) in Williamson County yeah Hell yeah. So, uh, just so we're on the record, uh, I know nobody likes that guy for some reason, so I'm just going to bandwagon and say I also don't like that guy, Yeah, but I'm not sure why we don't like him. Well, I have a soft spot for guys with DUIs. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh yeah, did you see uh, the Vols got their shit stomped yesterday? Um, They lost to an unranked South Carolina school. It was like 68 to 30 something. So I didn't see that, but the office group chat i'm in which is just full of vols fans mm-hmm. was very pissy last night full of copium and so i i concluded that the vols must have lost <laughs> because anytime they get pissy just reading the temperature of the group chat yeah like i if the group chat's real quiet the vols lost the group chat or is not happy today if the group chat's pissy the vols lost <laughs> you know what i think i'm gonna call out of work today the group chat is just too much and i can't imagine it's gonna be better in the office <laughs> no i actually like it when the vols lose and i go into the office because then i don't have to hear about the vols are you like extra like sunny and social on those days when you know nobody's in the fucking mood to talk you're just like hey how was your weekend bud <laughs> no I, I ask him about the game oh just oh did something bad happen and it's like oh why, why does everybody look down did the vols not do well or something uh, you know i don't really follow college football like that but whew, that's tough after they lost to the georgia bulldogs <laughs> a guy one of the, my coworkers, walked up and he was like so i guess you're happy to hear about what happened at the game and i was like why what happened he's like the vols lost and i was like oh i know i just wanted you to say it (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i don't think i've watched anything else recently of note uh i talked about barbarian last episode yeah i still haven't seen it which it i don't know why i really want to watch it i just haven't well i'd say i think you'd really like it but i don't want to put you off of it as long as it's as good as tusk i think that's what we said last time and that's my rule this time uh that's say it's significantly better than tusk but i know that you don't value my opinion on tusk it's gonna be trash look so i don't have a problem that you dislike midsomar and like tusk my problem is that the entirety of film exists in that binary for you is that it's either midsomar or tusk that's my issue it's a it's a flawless system (laughs) and it applies universally so show me a movie that doesn't fit on that spectrum somewhere well, let's see if we can apply it today. Uh, which film you want to start with, bud? Well, I think we both watched Vanishing Point first. Mm-hmm. Vanishing Point is the one I watched uh, longer, uh, more more 
historically. So I've thought about it more often. I thought you were so saying I could... watched it more than you. I watched it longer. <laughs> no. You watched the UK cut and didn't tell me, didn't you? <laughs> yes. I told you this is explicitly an anti-Redcoat fucking podcast. Look, I just like right-hand drive. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> no, I don't. But Vanishing Point from the what I would call a passenger seat, way better movie. <laughs> okay, so we're going to start with Vanishing Point from 1971. Directed by Richard C. Serafian. Uh, he was mostly known as like a Twilight Zone guy. He directed uh, the Living Doll episode. God, I love Twilight Zone. Yeah. Well, that's going to be a lot of connections in both of these films. A lot of those guys met working on episodes of the Twilight Zone in both films. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, I also noticed something funny is that uh, he plays Uncle Lou in Blue Streak. As an actor, did you ever watch Blue Streak, Martin is Lawrence? That, that where he steals the diamonds yes. and pretends to be a cop. Yes, and it's got that cameo with Dave Chappelle. I love yeah. that movie growing That's up. That's a solid movie. Is that, I think Luke Wilson's in it? That sounds right. Yeah. And uh, starring in Vanishing Point, we have Barry Newman. Uh, that's, I thought I knew him for more stuff, but I'm thinking of the other famous Newman. Uh, not from Seinfeld. Uh, uh, is it? Gary New No, Gary Newman's a musician. I have no idea. There's another famous fucking Newman. For some reason, uh Barry Newman reminds me of Gene Wilder. He does have a very similar it's, Gene Wilder face and he's got that kind of fro. Yeah. The outfit he's wearing in this movie made me think of Disco Stew from The Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> I love 70s fashion, but I hate 70s hair because I hate big hair and 70s big hair is like a precursor to 80s even bigger hair. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I Let's just take a couple feet out of the ozone so you can aquanet up. The I think like all of the like women's hairstyles in the seventies and eighties are fascinating to me. Fascinating, but I love no, I I love it. I think just it's just structurally it's better. You, you appreciate the engineering the behind big the beehive. Hair all teased out. I think it's better. Tease it to the moon. You want some like Donna Summers, like four feet off of your shoulders bring, type hair. Bring back Aquanet. It can't <laughs> be worse than Chinese multinational corporations. Are you about to lunch into that uh, speech Trump gave to those coal miners like four years ago about how they don't make hairspray good anymore? <laughs> Dude, the, I mean, if there's like evidence that he is a great orator, it's that he got a bunch of coal smudged miners from West Virginia to cheer for like hairspray not being as good anymore. <laughs> He's coming back, baby. Uh, Barry Newman also, did I mention he starred in Bowfinger? No. Oh. Well, he starred in Bowfinger. Well, I guess Steve Martin starred in it, but he's in it. And another film that I'm surprised there was even a Wikipedia page for it. I thought this is a movie only I knew about because it was like a random blind buy from Hastings like 12 years ago. G-Men from Hell starring <laughs> Gary Busey and William Forsyth. I guess he was in that as well. I, th I think I've heard of that movie, but I have really? never seen it. It's insane. Well, I mean, it's Gary Busey being Gary Busey. But God, he's, I love Gary Busey. Yeah, he's like a 
openly gay detective that's into like S and M stuff, and he's like constantly like intimidating people around him, just like sexually harassing everyone, pretty much. So I don't know if this would be true, but I just imagine Gary Busey in all of his roles being the same as Gary Busey from Black Sheep. I, yeah, Gary Busey. So I, I can imagine G Men from Hell is an awesome movie. You know, it's crazy when you watch a Gary Busey movie from before he had that motorcycle accident because he is like a, you know, competent, great, dramatic actor. And then post-motorcycle accident, he he's the Gary Busey you know today. Yeah, which I'm sure he's more popular as the character Gary Busey than he is as yeah. whatever he was before the accident. Well, that uh, Comedy Central show, I'm with Busey, was huge back in the day. I remember loving it. I don't remember that one. Oh, it was his, like, biggest fan, and he was just, like, torturing his biggest fan, like, making him do, like, different stunts. <laughs> they were eating roadkill on an episode, and he uh, oh. gave me the caveat that uh, raccoons are the only animal that have an actual bone in their penis, and it makes a good toothpick. That's so weird thing about coon hunters is they... Oh, could you rephrase that, please? No, that's what they're called. <laughs> it feels weird to say raccoon hunters, mm. but... The weird thing about coon hunters is they... Now I feel like you're just saying it to say it. I'm not saying it to say it. That's what it is. <laughs> they take the raccoon's penis bone and collect them. Oh, yeah. And you put it on just, like a necklace, like Vietnamese ears or her, something? Her, my daddy, just had a drawer in his tool his toolbox. So my my grandfather was a big coon hunter and raised dogs. And uh-huh. He just had like a drawer in his toolbox in the garage that was just full of raccoon penis bones. Raccoon dicks. And it's like... Why? Next to the sockets, like, beside the adjustable wrench. So like, I don't really know why, but you just you just collect them. Michael, it's where I keep them. And okay? I mean, in my head, you would make it into like a finger bone necklace. That's what I was thinking. Like that's that to me. That's what you do is you'd have a necklace of raccoon penis bones just jangling against your chest. Yeah, as you walk, it like makes all the raccoons in the area scatter. Yeah, like everyone hears you coming because it just sounds like bones rattling. All right, enough digression. Uh, also starring <laughs> Vanishing Point is Cleavon Little, who most people know as Sheriff Bart from Blazing Saddles. He plays the character as Super Soul, a DJ, and I really loved him in this movie. Uh, this isn't his only car film, though. He was also in Greased Lightning, starring opposite of Richard Pryor, which I haven't seen, but apparently that's based on a true... Uh, the first, like, black stock car driver. Oh, wow. I, yeah. hadn't, I hadn't seen it. And uh, we also have Dean Jagger. Uh, and the only film credits that I could recognize from him is he was in Game of Death, which was Bruce Lee's last film. That's the one he died during the making of. And he was also in a film from 1940 called Brigham Young, as Brigham <laughs> Young. I didn't know Mormons had money like that in the 40s. I thought it took, like, a couple generations to accrue that kind of wealth. I'm sure the movie couldn't have been that expensive to make. Yeah. I mean, when was like BYU founded Brigham Young University? I don't know. How would I know that? I don't know. It seems like the kind of thing you'd be in. I mean, I figured you'd watched all those last podcasts on the left, like series on Mormonism. I Yeah, but I don't remember when Brigham Young University was yeah. founded. Well, I'll tell you one thing. Those Mormons know how to ball. You see a BYU basketball player, it doesn't matter how white he is. That guy can probably dunk because he's never smoked a cigarette or drank a soft drink in his life well i'd say it's all that pent-up sexual energy you there's that only, too you can only soak so long before the game yeah well everyone knows you you don't jump hump before a game <laughs> you gotta keep the seed in you keep that fight in you um byu was founded in 1875 oh well i guess that was like right after the mormon church was founded because that was like it was post-civil war wasn't it yeah yeah I think oh. so. all right uh the story for uh, Vanishing Point was written by Guillermo Cabrera Infante, who was a Cuban novelist who was actually, uh, he was uh, Cuba's, I'm not sure how to put it, like uh, the supervisor for like 
the National Film Department. Oh. Mm-hmm. Secretary of Film? Secretary of Film, yeah, that's probably how you would phrase that. Yeah. <laughs> Secretary of Media or something like that. Uh, he was arrested under the Batista regime pre-Cuban Revolution for his writings, and then uh, he later exiled from Cuba, not for any, like, anti-communist reasons i think he had like a personal gripe with uh the fidel regime i think his brother had made a documentary about havana nightlife and fidel banned it because he didn't like how it like portrayed you know cuban nightlife i guess it seemed a little too excessive and capitalistic gotcha yeah that's uh i'm sure he just didn't get mad because fidel made them sell all their slaves well this guy was like he was a part of the cause until he wasn't because this was like late 70s he's not a gusano i'll give him that he's not a rat okay uh, the cinematography was done by john a alonzo who's very famous in this field uh he also did harold and maude chinatown uh, and scarface oh that's cool yeah uh the budget for this film was 1.85 million the box office it made 12.4 million that's a pretty sizable budget for this movie i feel it seems like especially because this was a film that I think it was parent. No, it was 20th Century Fox put it out, tried to bury it. Because the way film studios worked back then is there was like three or four of the big ones, probably the ones that are still around now, MGM, Paramount, and uh, 20th Century Fox. And they made a movie a month. But you only really cared about your uh, holiday releases and your summer releases. So this was released like mid-fall or something where you drop off the movies you're not super confident on and it became like a sleeper hit well you know what's interesting is dodge loaned five challengers to the eight 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 challengers huh in my research it seemed i'd seen five i know they destroyed five or they destroyed eight oh i don't know if dodge gave them eight though I don't know. They might have had to buy some of them, like, on their own. My understanding from looking into it before was that Dodge had leased them five of their brand new RT Challengers. And, yeah, I'm sure that several got destroyed, but I'm sure they weren't the ones Dodge loaned them. Mm Mm-hmm. I know a common misconception about the Dodge Challenger in this film is that it's a Hemi, but it's actually the 440 Magnum. Well, so it's, it's a Hemi. It's, a, it's just, I think they, my recollection of how it goes down is that uh, the big mi- misconception is they say the car is supercharged and it's not. Oh, okay. Uh, but I think it does have the 440 in it, mm-hmm. uh, which is just their big block offering. Um, and like we talked about yesterday, I mean, the only thing Hemi really means is it has hemispherical heads on it. Yeah. So all of Dodge's cars in that day were going to have hemispherical heads because that was their claim to fame. Yeah, and they had gotten it from a different manufacturer, right? They didn't invent the Hemi. I I think whoever popularized Hemi for Dodge, I mean, that was something that had been around a bit, but Mm -hmm. Dodge is the first first company to manufacture the Hemi on a large scale like that and put it on engines, uh, which really is... And it kind of goes back when you look at Tulane Blacktop, a lot of the dialogue in that is, ooh, they've got Cudas, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, they've got Hemis here. Because back in the day, Hemis were making really good power because of the head design. Like, it was was actually really forward thinking. Yeah. It seemed like most cars back then, just even like a regular everyday driving sedan, had a lot of oomph under the hood. Part of that is... Unless it's a cop car. In both films, I noticed every cop car is like the slowest looking car I've ever seen. Well, part of the um, one vanishing point, the cop cars do keep up with him. Mm. He's not going all that fast. And so at some point on vanishing point, they say over the radio, we think that thing's supercharged. Mm -hmm. It's not. No. I mean, and the fact of the matter is cars in those days really weren't all that fast. 
they were fast in that time. But mm-hmm. we're talking about, you know, that Challenger RT probably runs a quarter mile in, you know, yeah. 13 seconds when, you know, you get a new Mustang GT today and it's going to run a, a quarter in 10.9. That's stupidly fast. And so mm-hmm. I, I'm on the TikTok for old drag races of muscle cars. Yeah. And when they when they run each other, I mean, you're talking about a car that goes a uh, hundred and not like 96 to 105 miles an hour and a quarter mile. It really not all that fast. What they had going for them was mm-hmm. they did have pretty powerful engines for the day. They had good torque. And they had really aggressive rear end gears, so they they put that power down. But they, they were all very had, heavy. They were pretty heavy, and they had shitty tires. Yeah. The big downside, like all those old muscle cars could really roast the tires, and it's because the tires suck. Tires these days are way better. Mm-hmm. But that being said, if you look at the difference between the... Well, another thing about the cop cars in both films is that they all look kind of antiquated, and that might just have to do with the settings being in rural areas where the police wouldn't have the newest cars. Like, the bodies on them all look kind of 50s to me. Uh, I think in... And also, Van- none of them had, like, the top lamps. Like, I guess that hadn't come out yet. It's just, like, a red flashlight on the side as your flasher, as your uh, pullovers light down. Well, I think in Vanishing Point, they had cherries that they would put on top. Yeah. Um, which was probably pretty common. Most of the cop cars in Vanishing Point, I think, were, like, 65 to 68 variously produced cars, uh, all of them sedans. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, at that time, they, they're not going to be as as fast as the vanishing yeah. point challenger because that is dodge's top offering that they were putting out so mm-hmm. i mean that was the top trim challenger with a big engine it's going to be a lot for your run-of-the-mill rural cop car to keep yeah. up with that but they still do it i mean it's not yeah. like it's that much faster yeah with vanishing point it seems to be a lot more about maneuvering and, than speed but uh i guess we should go ahead and explain the plot of vanishing point a little bit uh barry newman's character plays a uh, kowalski and we're getting no first name no first name. And I like that about it. I mean... Then you're going to love Tulane Blacktop. Yeah, nobody has a name in that movie. Uh, his job is to deliver a 1970 RT Challenger from Denver to San Francisco in, what is it, like 48 hours? I think the understanding is he's a drug runner. Uh, he's supposed to deliver the car. I don't think he's a drug runner. I, no, like they, they stated in the film that that's his job. And so the reason he's like rearing and tearing this fucking car up is kind of like unnecessary. It's like that guy's not going to want to pay for that. See, and he's doing a lot of drugs, but I don't think he's running drugs. No, I and I'm going to look into that real quick because I, I, I'm fairly sure that he is. And I could be wrong, <laughs> but you're right. I mean, his main goal is he's trying to get this car across country and they've told him there's no way you can get it all the way yeah. across the country in two days. Well, everybody's telling him to just relax, take a day, sleep for God's sakes, and he just won't do it because you get bits and pieces of his backstory throughout, and it doesn't really spoon-feed the plot to you, which I appreciated. Uh, You see that he was a former motorcycle racer, he was a former stock car racer, he was a former cop, and then through a bit of dialogue, we find out that he fought in Vietnam and how disenfranchised he is with kind of society, and he doesn't really have warm interactions with anyone, so it seems like he stays in the car because that's the only place where the world makes sense to him, is when he's driving. And I like the way that, like, the geography of this film, well, in both films, really, I like how you can match the plot up to U.S. geography. To a foreign audience, that might not be as appealing, but I think that's really neat how, like, Denver, Nevada, and California feel like separate video game levels, and how he has different road encounters throughout the travel. 
almost like little bosses. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think it's really that aspect of it is the demarcations between each stage of his travel mm-hmm. is pretty clear. And uh, you, you are right. I, I think he my my confusion came from he makes a, a deal with his drug dealer yeah. about him not being able to make it in time, but he was just delivering the car. It's separate. There are two separate things going on there. Yeah. Well, you yeah. learn from that interaction with his drug dealer that you know obviously he's taken. Sp- amphetamines to keep himself up so he can drive for long distances but he's also negotiating a deal on some benny so he also needs downers to go to sleep so he has trouble both staying awake and falling asleep presumably from all of his lifelong of of troubles and struggles that you get in the flashbacks yeah but you were you were saying you're talking about the scenes between the two uh, between all the different locations yeah uh like i said it's it's almost got kind of a fantasy western element to it and i think both films kind of do a good job of showing this because the united states interstate system that started in the early 70s is that right well, the idea i think the interstate system started in the 40s the 40s i was thinking it didn't really become prevalent until around this time period so there's kind of like this wild west aspect to the open road especially in the deserty states and yeah yeah i would agree and you know, it, I see a lot of parallels between this and like the spaghetti westerns of the late 60s and early 70s. I see a lot between uh, Kowalski and Clint Eastwood's character in the Man with No Name trilogy from Sergio Leone. I think you're you're right. I mean, we're you're talking about this wide open space. He's traded in his horse for a car, mm-hmm. and it's just about the existentialism yeah. of, of all life. beautifully shot by John A. Alonzo. Just the very wide desert shots look so fucking cool to me. Yeah, no, this sh- I think it's very well filmed and produced, mm-hmm. and that's why you hate it. No, that's <laughs> not why I hate it. I hate it because I think it's boring. You think it's boring? I think Tulane Blacktop is way more boring. I find than this Tulane film. Blacktop way more interesting. Tulane Blacktop is very more nuts and bolts mechanical talk, which I think I could see why that would be more appealing to you. Yeah, I, I when I watch Vanishing Point, and I thought this the first time I watched it, and which was a couple of years ago, and then the first, uh, the second time I watched it uh, last week, it's just it just doesn't do it for me. It's something about I, I get why it's appealing, but it seems really disconnected. There's a lot of weird stuff going on with no explanation. Um, and it's really nonsensical. I mean, why he's doing it, don't really know. Where he, like, why he's going to kill himself, nobody, like, why, why? Yeah. We don't know. There's a lot of discussion on whether or not he is killing himself at the end, whether or not it's suicidal, or whether or not he's, like, that strung out that he thinks he can make that tiny gap in between the bulldozer blades, but... Uh. I mean, I, I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard for me to buy that he was so strung out that he thought he could make it between the the bulldozers because they're real close together i think people chalk it up just like the little grin he gives right before he plows into him i always my read of it was he's he's started this chase and he's running and he's not going to get captured Mm -hmm. and so he slams into the bulldozers for the purpose of saying i make the decisions you can't control me. I'm going out on my terms. Yeah. I'm the last free soul in America, as uh, Cleavon Little's character puts it. And Cleavon Little's character really makes the film for me. I love him as Super Soul. I think his narration of it yeah. and his commentary is one of the more interesting parts of the film. And he adds a further like fantastical element to it in that he seems to be able to like track Kowalski psychically he like communicates to him through the radio like he can somehow hear Kowalski's responses when he's talking to the car well and of course he's blind yeah he's blind he's got this 
prophetic uh, yeah. a- access to him, kind of like a, a truth seer or teller or whatever. Mm-hmm. Of course, he's getting fed information for his f- friends are tied into the scanners. Yeah, he's got the police scanner, but then there's also instances where he's like in the middle of Death Valley where the police don't have eyes on him, and he somehow knows how to like kind of talk to him and guide him. Well, I, the helicopter's out. Yeah. So they are. They do know he's out in the desert, and so when he knows he's in the desert, he's just kind of yeah. saying, "Hey, I, I get, I get where you're at, and I get what you're coming from. Mm-hmm. They're going to wait you out. They're going to hope you die in the desert, yeah. kind of thing." So I think it. There is this little bit of conversational tone to him within his broadcast, mm-hmm. but I've never. It, it's kind of just him really looking into it and going, "What? What would a guy in this position? What's he thinking? What's he doing?" And trying to put himself in that position. Yeah, and he doesn't seem to be like self-motivated that he's trying to make an American hero to boost his radio show. He seems genuinely interested in this last rebel and the American West, the last, you know, gunslinger type which, deal. Which somehow upsets all those white racist guys who decide we're going to go beat up a blind man. Well, I think those guys kind of already hate him. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he's the... It's like, a very ACAB film, which is another thing I very much appreciated about it. He's one of three black people in this town. Yeah. And it's also kind of implied that he's uh, either Nation of Islam or Black Panther or some variation of the two, because he's wearing a kofi throughout the film. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't understand why he's there or how he's in charge of the radio station, because it doesn't seem like the kind of place that would let him do that. Uh, I mean, as is apparent because they storm and, and yeah, like beat everybody to, almost to death. It seems like the town around him does have a very like standoffish attitude with him, similar to the cop that is reacting to his radio plays like how is this guy getting away with it and he calls him a different slur he gets called two different slurs in this film well he gets called the n-word whenever they break into the radio station and beat him up but also when the cops like uh the two cops are talking to each other and the older cop is explaining his deal to him he's like fucking fag (laughs) oh yeah which f slur which is weird yeah because it's there's nothing apparently homosexual about it yeah i mean they're it's just so weird to me and there's a little more homophobia later whenever kowalski picks up a gay couple that didn't tries to rob them and they're very like stereotypically like effeminate sissies but it's weird because kowalski's not not homophobic toward him yeah yeah he's just like i don't give a shit i'm just trying to drive across country really fast Oh, you don't take us seriously because we're a couple of queers. And he starts laughing at him and they pull the gun on him. And he just beats both of them up in the car and throws them out. But and then later there's like a little bit of dialogue that says like they didn't like give the cops any information on him. Yeah, I mean, he just kicked them out. I mean, I yeah. guess he could have killed them. Game's game. Um, but yeah, they, they're super effeminate for some reason. It's mm-hmm. just like a classic 70s stereotype. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that there's... Uh, non-stereotypical portrayal of gay men in this era of film yet. Well, I mean... If I don't think gay people were humanized in film until fucking Philadelphia. <laughs> I, I'd, I think that's the first one. I don't I don't know. Maybe you're <laughs> right. Maybe you're right. But, so, what's, what's interesting to me is Vanishing Point is kind of like Seinfeld. Okay. Because Seinfeld's just like, it's a show about nothing. Mm-hmm. Vanishing Point's kind of about nothing. It's just about... Like, it's just a guy driving. I think it's about one simple plot line, getting from A to B, and then all of the execution around that simple plot being filled out. It's a style over substance, I'll say that. Well, and I don't even think the movie's about him getting from... Well, so there's It's literally about getting from A to B. It, there's the point of like delivering the car, which from one city to another, which completely becomes pointless. Mm-hmm. Uh, because he's tearing he, the fucking thing up. The he's whole he's ragging it out. He's yeah. slamming it through ditches, and and it, it's awful. Mm-hmm. 
and then it just becomes him trying to get to the city but it's all nonsensical Uh, i guess it's kind of just like his amphetamine fueled journey but you've got all these weird subplots going around like the people he meets out in the desert like the girl who has the uh, oh the the christian snake handling cult Yes. Well, yeah. no, no, that, yes, that's different. But he also meets the guy who gives him more amphetamines and yeah. that blonde woman who rides around naked on a motorcycle mm-hmm. who, who just like brings him this yeah. tableau of him and yeah. says, I've got this from when you did this thing with the cops. Yeah. Yeah. And the flashback, like, how, how would she have that? Yeah. I don't know. Well, it does show like a newspaper clipping of when he was like kicked out of the police force for uh turning on one of his superiors we see that in a flashback he starts like he starts to like rape a girl and then kowalski intervenes and that's the end of his time as a police officer which is a weird interrogation tactic by the way he's like yeah tell me what you know tell me what you know all right i'm gonna rape you and it's like yeah what why would she tell you anything like because you're clearly gonna do it anyway say i won't It's like, it's to me, there's all this stuff going on for the artistic value of, hey, this is quirky. Mm-hmm. This is quirky. Let's do this. And it subtracts from, to me, when I watch it, like, I want to see a good car film. And what mm-hmm. I get is a film about a guy driving. And then at the same time, here's all this weird stuff going on for yeah. no reason. Well, the things you're calling, like, nonsensical are the things that are making me call it fantastical. It's yeah. I got a fantasy element to it. Like I said, almost video game like. And I enjoy that aspect of it. But uh, I think some of the other things are like missing a little cultural context for right now. Because a uh, comparison that both of these films get is to Easy Rider, which is kind of explicitly about the death of the love generation, the hippie generation, how it was all bullshit and didn't change anything. And I think we see a lot of that in both of these films. So like with the naked girl on the motorcycle who the actress actually ended up blistering her vagina driving that thing naked in the desert. I bet. That yeah. little leather seat had to be scalding. Yeah. Could they put a towel down or something? They didn't. I, I guess apparently. they didn't, no. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I think that's a lot of uh, a lot of the attitude that fuels this film is this sort of uh, nihilist nihilism that kind of pervades throughout '70s cinema in a post-Vietnam world. Or yeah, I mean, I guess that's exactly it. It's a post-love generation world. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I when I watch it, it's you know they say it, it's described as the greatest car movie ever made. Mm. It's definitely not that. Well, they haven't the, seen Tokyo Drift. <laughs> they haven't seen. Fast and Furious 7. I don't think I've seen 7. Is I, it, I haven't either. Is that the street fight one? <laughs> I don't know. The you know thing about a street fight is the street always wins. I mean, I haven't seen past Tokyo Drift. I haven't either. I think I've seen the fourth one, but that one's kind of like a soft reboot. But yeah. all in all, I mean, Vanishing Point is not the greatest car movie or greatest car chase movie of all time. It's only like the car is symbolic of freedom. And mm-hmm. the ability to do things. I'm real disappointed that that little Jaguar coupe outran. <laughs> I don't know how that stuntman didn't fucking die. The way it flips off the bridge into the river and it's like got no top. I don't see any kind of like safety roll bar on it. I, I don't know how they did that scene. But the practical stunts is another aspect of Vanishing Point that I really love. Just like so many of them like just made me flinch because you don't see those in car movies anymore because they don't really make car movies anymore. Just practical car effects where you're like, even if the driver didn't get seriously hurt, he's definitely like jamming up his vertebrae, bouncing around like that, going in and out of the ditches and medians. It's a very Dukes of, Dukes of Hazard yeah. style of like, we're going to destroy this car for the sake of this shot and we will destroy as many as it takes. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, but Dukes of Hazzard are the reason why there are no Dodge Chargers left. <laughs> Thanks. You destroyed all of them. 
Yeah, it's like near impossible to find that specific 1970 RT Challenger now. Uh, it's not because he destroyed it. It's just a just a very sought after car. Mm. But and we're talking about the in, the early 70s is the end of what I would call the era of muscle. Yeah, we kind of talked about that last week when we were talking about the diesel boys, how like cars kind of got neutered in the 70s for like emissions and there's the gas crisis. And- yeah, and so when you look at a car like that in like 72, you know, that was probably the one of the last years you had big V8s making big power. And then after that, you had big V8s making small power mm. to like the 1978 Cadillac that's got an eight liter engine that makes 140 horsepower. <laughs> and you're like. I don't, why do you have And weighs 5,000 pounds. Like, you've got this honking, like, 800-pound engine in here. Land boat. That you could have, you could have put anything else in here other than you're like, well, Americans like V8s, mm-hmm. but we can't make a V8 that also makes power, so we'll just make them really big and inefficient. And I don't get it. <laughs> I really don't understand it. But the, the fact of the matter is, that era, the, like, ah, 66 and a half to 67 towards 72 Mm -hmm. is this like golden era of muscle where cars are getting faster and faster engines are getting bigger and it's it's the manufacturers are lying about the horsepower that they put out because insurance companies won't let you get a claim on them well you know and so there's a lot going on there and you don't that dies away Mm -hmm. and you don't really see there's a couple of standout cars in the 70s and 80s like Barracudas uh, or something? Well, no. I mean, yeah. Barracudas were, were They're in that dead. era. Okay. Uh, you know, it looked like the Buick Grand National mm-hmm. in the 80s. That's real cool. And then you start to see, like, the Fox Body Mustangs in the 80s and 90s, uh, more toward the 90s, that are yeah. bringing power back, so much so that California Highway Patrol gets Fox Body Mustangs. But and that the, And that's kind of like you start to have a little bit of resurgence there of this muscle era. And you don't really bit. get the, like, lightweight Italian sports cars till like, the end of the 70s, right? Um, well, I mean, I, th- I think they were making them the whole time, but... They don't really come into prominence till like, maybe the early 80s is when Ferraris and stuff got real big. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, Ferrari was running races and Ferraris were already huge mm. before then. Now there may have not been much of a market here, but you know, it probably has to do with import rules and restrictions. But regardless of that, like American muscle really didn't have another resurgence until there's a little bit Ford was doing some stuff with like the, the Cobras and the CVT project, but it's like the mid two thousands. that you really see Dodge come back with, we're bringing out big V eights again. Yeah. And then for the past 14 years, we've been in the, like this recent resurgence of modern muscle Mm -hmm. and you know it's over now we're we're on the decline of that so yeah it's kind of like we're at a time we're at a point in time very similar to the 70s challenger like in terms of car performance about to be on the and the company or the uh, country entering a depression (laughs) yeah yeah that's another energy crisis you know we're there's there's a lot of similarities i think between now and then at least from a eastern europe's fucking around (laughs) a car enthusiast perspective but yeah it's the car in vanishing point to me should be the central focus and it's not it's kowalski's weird mental back and forth his amphetamine fueled trips and well, I almost think that Kowalski and the car are like one entity. I don't know. I mean, I, in a even sense though it's like, like he, a car that he's driving for three days, he's abusing his body. So why not abuse the car? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, uh, you make a good point. You know, but you know, I mean, if he he just uh, yeah, I mean, the the car really here is just a mechanism to me for him to go on his journey. It's an extension of his character, and then he has all these fantastical slash nonsensical encounters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't really know at the end of the day, like I don't finish Vanishing Point 
and go, what have I learned about myself? What have I learned about people? I just go, huh. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know that I really ask myself that question when I watch any feature film. I, when, my thought when I finished Vanishing Point was like, well, hot damn, that was pretty cool. I just, I didn't. I, the, the wreck at the end where he slams into the bulldozers to me is just, it falls flat. When I watch it, it's just like, I watched all of this, all of these weird encounters and then he just slams into a bulldozer there's an explosion and it's all for nothing well, which I, mean, I get is the existential crisis yeah. but i just i just don't enjoy it well compared to like the end of devil's rejects the free bird scene where they run into the hail of gunfire from the cops i think it's similar to that and i think both of those are great ways to end a story but it is like we miss- said it's him going out on his own terms and i think that's a great way to end this you know narrative of the last cowboy you know you know and i don't disagree that you know, taking your life into your own hands because your options are be captured and go to prison or die on your own terms. Mm. I don't necessarily think that that's a terrible way to end a movie. I just don't enjoy Vanishing Point or the way they did it. Yeah. Well, the stunt itself, I think, is pretty cool. Like, it's a huge explosion for what it is. I think I was reading that uh, they took out the engine and transmission and just had all explosives under the hood, and they were, like, towing it with the trailer into the uh, the bulldozers. And originally, they were wanting it to flip over the bulldozer blades and explodes, but no, it ends up going into that upright position, and the explosions under the hood were so strong that it welded the Challenger to the bulldozer blades. And it kind of comes up upright and almost like a crucifixion type position, which I thought was like a really strong visual language, like point on to the end, you know. It's lost on me. It's lost It's too on artistic. You. Yeah. Well, let's uh, get into the aesthetics of the Challenger itself. Like that particular body model, I like, it looks so much meaner than regular Challengers, like with the recessed grill, the way the hood like hangs over in kind of a lip, it almost looks like it's snarling at you. What do you mean by regular Challengers? Do they not all, this one in particular, the RTs, do they, aren't they special in how the grill is like recessed under like the lip of the hood and the suspension's higher than I normally see on a Challenger, which might've just been a practical choice for all the off-roading he's doing. Well, are you saying... When you say normal Challenger, are you referring to that era Challenger, or are you referring to all Challengers you've ever seen? Uh, all Challengers I've ever seen. Including new Challengers. Yeah. I'm thinking specifically your old Challenger. Yeah. So, I mean, the the when I watch Vanishing Point, it does make me miss my Challenger. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... It was white, but not Alpine white. No, it's bright white. Another thing, that Alpine white color on the desert background really pops visually. Yeah. It does. I mean, the car stands out in the movie. Um, you know, aesthetically, the the Challenger was the smaller of the two cars. You had Chargers mm-hmm. and Challengers. The, Chal- the yeah. Charger was a bigger bodied. And that's flip uh, sense. Aren't Challenger or Chargers oh, usually smaller now? Chargers now are four-door sedans. Yeah. I don't know why they made that decision, but they did. The Challenger is the lighter one. It's a little more nimble. It's like how that electric Mustang is a hatchback. <laughs> the Mustang Mach-E. Don't get people started on that. It's not just that it's a hatchback. It's it's an SUV. I mean, they're literally mocking you with the name Mach-E. You know, uh, if you just wanted to call it the Ford Mach-E, yeah. that would make sense. But when you like call back to the Ford, just name it after a different fucking horse. When you call when you name it at, like call it back to the Mustang Mach One, uh, it's like that's that's upsetting. But yeah, I mean the the style of the Challenger, it's iconic, and, mm-hmm. and the Vanishing Point Challenger, I think, is the cultural effect of that is the Vanishing Point Challenger is the staple for what Challengers look like in people's mind, um, and it's clearly the inspiration, like the se- the seventy Challenger is a real heavy inspiration for the modern Challengers. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, you know, with the new ones, you get wide, they get wide body versions of it with the fender flares. Yeah. And I think that loses a lot because to me, the Challenger looks like a 1971 or se- 1970, 1971 Challenger with straight body. You know, you don't mm-hmm. have fender flares just like a, most Challengers looked like before 2016, 2017. Yeah. But that is like the epitome of Challengers for me. Do Challengers sense that model? Do they typically sit as high as that one does? Well, I mean... Uh, or was it like I was saying, it's probably like a practical choice they made? I don't know what the stock ride height was of a Challenger back in the day. I just remember yours uh, being like fairly low to the ground. Mine was fairly low to the ground. Cars these days are lower, generally. It helps with aerodynamics. Yeah. So you make a car lower, less air can go underneath it, which helps with fuel economy and mileage. Mm. My Challenger also had a pack on it where it was lowered from the factory so it sat really close to the ground um so the ride height a lot of those old cars had a pretty tall ride height yeah it also kind of reminds me of this most recent batman film the robert pattinson one his batmobile is like a did you say it was a charger I think it's a charger. It's I like have, a charger that's sitting up high on some like monster truck wheels. Yeah, I have And I think that's like the coolest Batmobile that's come out so far. I haven't watched that. I would disagree. My favorite uh, Batmobile is the one uh, from the movie with Val Kilmer, where the long okay. one with the big wings on the back of it, and the, the engine would like glow blue. Okay, yeah. That's the classic black, back, Batmobile for me. But regardless... You like the long dick car yeah yeah the more phallic the better that one's more similar to like the one oh val kilmer was uh the second one with val is val kilmer and that one's also tim burton i think or am i mixing it up so keaton's the first one but keaton didn't come back for the second one is that when val kilmer takes over you have keaton kilmer and clooney yeah um and i don't remember what the order is clooney is after kilmer and keaton okay um but clooney then bale first then kilmer yeah um, so I think Batman Returns, that's the Val Kilmer one with, uh, Catwoman and Penguin. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. That sounds right. I don't remember. They, uh, they probably both are Tim Burton. The first two are, yeah. yeah. George Clooney's isn't. No, that's a Schumacher. So. And those were just made to sell toys. It's true, man. Watch either of those Schumacher Batmans and it's just Hasbro commercials. Even the Batmobile looks like absurd. It's like cartoonish. Yeah. But Christian Bell's Batman's Batmobile's. It's a tank. Yeah. It's a Lambo tank. Lambo tank. Which, I mean, it's cool. It's absurd. (laughs) And I I haven't seen the new Batman. Yeah. But that Batmobile reminds me of a Fast and Furious car. Does it? It kind of looks like Dom's Challenger. Or like Dom's Ice Challenger. Hmm. Or Ice Charger. I'm only familiar with the Black Challenger. I think in one of the movies they have, uh, they put one on like snow tires and drifted around a snow track. You know the thing about a Challenger? Is that it's you challenging yourself. Yeah, but he had a charger. You know the thing about a charger is that you're charging the car, not the other way around. Or you're charging yourself. You're charging yourself. Gotcha. That makes no sense. You know the thing about making sense is it's not the most important thing in the world. But where does family <laughs> fit into all this? Oh, family's everything. That's the only thing that does make sense in this world. So, yeah, I mean, I, I get it. Vanishing Point's fine and all. It's just, I don't enjoy it. I, I get bored when I watch it. I really love the vibe. I think both of these movies have a way with how they use licensed music. And I think it's a more traditional way in Vanishing Point. Whereas in uh, Tulane Blacktop, it's kind of like, 
a background. It's, there's always a source for the music. You know, it's playing off of the eight track. It's playing off the radio. It's playing off the car system. Whereas in this, it's more traditional. Like this is like God is playing a fucking Mississippi Queen by Mountain for you right now. Of course, you also have like the narrative device of Cleavon Little's character selecting the music through the radio station. But also the score for Vanishing Point was really, really good, I thought. It was very kinetic, and it had this like acid jazz vibe to it. And there was some guitar techniques in it that surprised me that it came out in 71. Because they were using like techniques that are more synonymous with like 80s shred, like a post-Van Halen type shred. Which, you know, Van Halen was around then, but they weren't nearly well as known. Like, there's a bunch of like dive bombs and like i don't know i guess like maybe like the prog of the late 60s early 70s and psychedelic kind of got in this territory but like it felt very like ahead of its time for 1971 and that's something i didn't really notice i mean i noticed the score was good yeah was good but a lot of alternative percussion and stuff but i didn't notice any of that nuance Mm. all right uh anything else you got to say about vanishing point i mean i'd watch vanishing you know what I would watch Bad Boy Bubby before I'd watch Vanishing Point again. Really? Yeah. Bad Boy Bubby's at least somewhat interesting to me. Would you rather watch Vanishing Point or Enemy at the Gates? God. Um Enemy at the Gates. You are fucking full of shit, dude. It's got it's got more action. Shut up. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it's got slightly more You're just more being action. a cocksucker now. <laughs> it's got slightly more action. I don't know. I would put... Okay, Vanishing Point or the Bobby Flay Scooby-Doo? Vanishing Point. Okay. Uh, Bobby Flay I guess I gotta watch that Scooby-Doo episode to see what's... Honestly, Bobby Flay Scooby-Doo is down there with like... I might... I would watch Midsommar before I'd watch Bobby Flay Scooby-Doo. It's like right up there with like watching like PETA propaganda footage of like minks getting skinned alive. (laughs) Honestly, I'd rather watch that. (laughs) I don't like Bobby Flay Scooby-Doo. But to me, Vanishing Point... Maybe it's because the hype that I'd always heard before I watched it. Um, it's a movie that I yeah. sought out. I think so, we both saw Death Proof before we saw this, and that film's big on Vanishing Point. I, I probably did see Death Proof first, and of course I love Death Proof. Mm-hmm. I, Vanishing Point's one of those movies where I'd always heard great things about it. People, older pe- generations would say, oh, you haven't seen Vanishing Point? Yeah. It's the greatest car movie ever, whatever. And so I sought that movie out. It's a movie I'd and, always heard about through like pop culture, but I'd never watched personally. So after I sought it out and I watched it and I went this is it mm-hmm. this is what was such a big deal that everybody told me I just had to watch and I don't know if it's part of just it being oversold to me that when I watched it it was lackluster and that put a bad taste in my mouth mm. but I think it's definitely a uh, style over function film and I just don't it doesn't n- I, there's not a real hook for me other than the car mm-hmm. and I will say when I watch it you know there's all sorts of cars in this movie and it's fun to see all the cool cars that you just don't see anymore. Yeah. Um, but that being said, at the end of the day, the movie itself doesn't hook it for me. I'm just not that interested in it. And I don't really know what it offers. I don't know why. I think it's people remembering how cool it was more than they actually thought it was cool when they tell you how great the movie is. You think it's just nostalgia for that yeah. era of muscle car? I think it's nostalgia for people who grew up in that era Vanishing Point came out, and they're like, oh my god, this car is so cool. Hmm. Cars are cool. Because cars had a lot more personality and character then than they do now, I think. Yeah. Um, and it's it's got this sense of uh, liberty and freedom about the open road, but it's just too fantastic yeah. for me. <laughs> in the sense of fantasy. Yeah. Like, I just, it gets lost to me. And I think Tulane Blacktop hmm. is a more practical movie, and I think that's why I like it better. Yeah. Well, as somebody... 
that's also watching it for the first time. Uh, that's not very car literate. I've really enjoyed just the vibe of it all, but I'm also big on 70s cinema. I think that's the golden age for film is, you know, 68 to 79. But I don't know. I just, everything about this film, just, it was a cool vibe. Maybe that's maybe kind of what you're not digging is that it's a vibe film. Yeah, and it's uh, for me when I watch it, I go, man, I'd really like to get the El Camino fixed up mm-hmm. and get it running good. And then I, I've always wanted to go to one of those places like the the interstate in Texas where the speed limit's 85. Yeah, and just cruise fast for a while. Like that's always been a, a, a kind of a dream of mine. I, so I I already romanticize the open road culture. Yeah, the road trip culture. You would long, love to have Kowalski's job, just yeah. delivering sick cars. You know, this long stretch of road where it's just you, nobody else for miles, and you can just kind of put the pedal down and just think and drive. Yeah, until you have a random encounter. And you have a random encounter with a couple of stereotypical gay dudes who pull a gun on you for some reason. Or some psycho in a Jaguar wearing a batter's helmet. <laughs> yeah, and then who's going to let that guy beat him in a race? Not me. Come on, not me. I'm getting on that narrow bridge first. One, I don't like British cars. That includes Jaguars. <laughs> and I'm not going to let a British person or a little weird guy in a baseball hat. <laughs> Baseball helmet, yeah. I'm not going to let a baseball helmet beat me. I assume that was a batter's helmet. I've never seen another helmet that has a brim or or a bill on it. I figure it's a British driving helmet. (laughs) That does sound like some stupid-ass British shit. Like I said, anti-red coat podcast. Uh, I think we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about 1971's Tulane Blacktop. with 1971's Tulane Blacktop. And I'll tell you, when I first saw this movie, I thought it was Tulane Blacktop, like the city. Oh, like Tulane University, like Louisiana? Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) But every time we say Tulane, I I think Tulane. Get that boy down on the blacktop and go vroom, vroom, that's exactly right. Yeah, boy. Uh, it was directed by Monte Hellman, who uh, also directed Silent Night, Deadly Night 3. Uh, and then the only other two films that I thought of note on his filmography are uh, he did two westerns back-to-back, both starring Jack Nicholson, another Easy Rider connection, uh, Ride in the Whirlwind and The Shooting. The film stars uh, singer-songwriter James Taylor. That's more my mom's area of music. Growing up, I was always much more in love with like my dad's like seventies British invasion rock and southern rock and stuff like that. But my mom was always more into like the seventies singer songwriter piano ballad guys like James Taylor, Elton John, Cat Stevens. And that's something I've kind of appreciated more as I got older. Uh, it also stars Dennis Wilson, the drummer for the Beach Boys, and a BFF of uh, Charles Manson. He lived with him for a while. Well, you know, I um, I'm he was the one that was supposed to get 
Charlie a record contract. I'm also a big Charles Manson fan. Are you? I think the chaos he brought into the world was just just what was needed. Have you read Chaos by Tom Neal? I haven't. I know you have it, don't you? Yeah, I do. It's really good. I think I was supposed to borrow it from you. Yeah, I'll loan it to you, even though you still got that copy of Salem's Lot in your door pocket. Yeah, I noticed that. (laughs) Okay, it's not like you didn't borrow that book from Lindsay and leave it in the Also leave it in that same truck. (laughs) He left it in the floorboard for three months. Something about that big-ass truck just makes dudes illiterate. (laughs) (laughs) You get in, you forget what books are. (laughs) What is this? Paper. (laughs) I just leave it there in case I get cold and need to set a fire. Yeah, I need need to rip up this bag paper to insulate myself stuff it down my shirt uh it also stars warren oates who was in uh the wild bunch he also played john dillinger in the biopic dillinger and his last film was a uh, stripes with bill murray you ever see that one um i have seen stripes yeah but you know warren oates is one of those guys like his name's like i remember his name but i really don't place him in anything it's all a little bit before my time yeah when i first read it i immediately thought warren Beatty, different warren but he's really good in this one. He's like, to me, he's what makes this film watchable. <laughs> Without his character, it's very tough to like have the plot move along at all. I, I would agree that he is fundamental to how this story progresses. Uh, it was written by a guy named Will Corey, or at least the story was. The story by Will Corey. And uh, it got thrown in the trash and was rewritten by Rudolf Wurlitzer. The budget for this film was $875,000. Very modest, even for the time. Well, and when you think about it, the movie's not anything. They go to real places. Yeah. And they just, they don't have, there's no big wrecks, no big explosions. It's just probably the most expensive part of this movie was the GTO. Mm -hmm. And uh, I couldn't find any box office numbers on this thing because I think it got shelved by the studio, the one that ultimately put it out, because I was reading in some of the supplemental material how they had to shop it around to different studios, and they kept saying, "Uh, I think we need 1.5 to make it, and the studio would be like, "Uh, this looks more like 1.8, we're not interested. And then they would lower it down, I think we can do it for 1.3. This looks like 1.6, I don't think we're going to do it. And then eventually... One studio offered them 950k, and they were able to get it in at 875. Yeah, I mean, it's not. There's not a whole lot to this movie. I don't know that uh, it was really put out until the Criterion release, because I know uh, in other supplemental uh, reading and listening I did, they talked about how for the longest time A and E aired it once or twice and bootlegs of that airing were the only way to watch the film so all the foul languages was censored out and there's not really any violence in this movie particularly and there's not really any nudity but it was severely cut down just like thematically i don't know how true that is uh, maybe that is right but I, I know my dad had seen it a long time ago and i mean the criterion collection looks like it released in january of 2013 mm-hmm. so i don't know maybe that's right but well you got to stream anywhere i'm sure it did have like a theatrical run just it wasn't put out by the studio the way it should have been but there wasn't a home video release until the criterion collection like i said there was also the bootlegs from the one a and e airing yeah maybe maybe that's right i don't don't know that just seems wild to me that it would go basically unobtainable for a number of years so the plot of this film is about a race that never fucking happens No, the the plot of the movie is these guys have this uh, 55 Chevy and yeah. they're just traveling around to go to races. I mean, that's all they're yeah. doing is they're on a road trip where they're racing. Is there a model to that Chevy or is it just a Chevy? Yeah, it's a, sh- uh, a Chevy 150. 
Okay. Primered out. Yeah, I mean, it's just a, a sedan that never came with... So the car in the movie is a 454, a big block Chevy in it. That car never came with that, so they had to put it in. It's got two four-barrel carburetors on it, so they're dumping a bunch of fuel in it. It's like a legit race car. It's got mm. a roll cage in yeah. it. When you say the phrase, a uh, rat rod, this is the car you're thinking of. Um, It's not a rat rod car. No. Rat rod cars tend to be chopped and lowered. So like you cut the, the roof on it down. So it's got a real narrow window. It's lowered right to the ground where like the, sometimes the wheels come up through the front, the, the body of the car. Mm-hmm. Um, rat rods are a little more custom and they tend to be based off of thirties and forties cars. Okay. This is your classic. Um, somebody got a small sedan and just primered it because they didn't want to paint it and they put a big engine in it and they and ripped out and gutted it. It's yeah. just a, it's just your, this is your traditional drag car. Yeah. Big power, fat tires, low yeah. weight. Two big fat drag tires in the back. Yeah. And I mean, it, it doesn't even have hinges. The, yeah, the, the trunk, the is lid of on. the trunk, the, the trunk lid is just pinned. Those um, hinges were too heavy, man. And it's because it's the the trunk lid is it's real like thin sheet metal. Yeah. So they took the weight of the trunk out. Um, I mean, the whole thing stripped down. They mentioned this at is, one point that it doesn't have heat or air because that would weigh too much. Del Camino doesn't have air either. <laughs> well, that's not because of weight. I mean, yeah, it broke and somebody never put one in. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you you cut those you know that pulley out and those condensers out and the heater core out and you're cutting down weight. It's got plastic windows. They don't roll. They slide. I hate that. Um, the whole thing. Well, it's for safety too. It's not going to shatter because it's not yeah, glass. it's plastic. But still, but, I just hate the look of it. But this is a movie, unlike the unlike Vanishing Point, where you're talking about a car that's like from the factory. This is American muscle. Mm-hmm. Two Lane Blacktop is about two guys. One's the driver, one the mechanic. Yeah, and which is all you ever know them as. And the mechanic tunes on the car while they're running. The driver just drives the car and they've got this machine that they've made that is light fast and just no frills it is exactly all thrills no frills yeah uh, there's definitely no expense on aesthetic well not not no yeah there's no expense on ex- no I'm expense mix- on aesthetic yeah and i'm mixing that up with spare no expense <laughs> Which means the opposite of what I just said. You're, you're right. So here the, I am getting caught between idioms. There's no expense spent on ex, on aesthetic. I'm in Michael Hater mode today. And in in contrast, the the nemesis, the antagonist, yeah, GTO and his car, uh, which is a, a 1970 Pontiac GTO, which is all aesthetic stock it's all aesthetic and and i want to caveat that with it's all aesthetic to the driver of the gto whose name is he's only referred to as gto yeah uh so gto drives a pontiac gto in 1970 it's trimmed out it's got the big engine in it um it's the gto is like the pinnacle of pontiac Mm -hmm. and it is a sick car it had a cassette player, which I think was fairly new at the time. I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, he, he the car was decked out. Uh, interestingly enough, it's not a GTO Judge because no. 1969 was the only year you could get the Judge package on a GTO. Yeah. It does a good job of contrasting uh, the driver and the mechanic with this affluent hobbyist, the GTO. 
uh, how they both look at driving separately. The the driver and the mechanic have a very zen-like attitude towards racing. You know, this is what we do. This is how we feed ourselves. You know, it's not cool. It's not, you know, something we're particularly passionate about. This is just our way of life. Whereas the GTO driver is very insecure. Uh, he has a different color sweater every time the camera cuts to him. Well, and I would disagree. I think yeah. that the driver and the mechanic are intensely passionate in a very stoic, yeah. masculine passion for... <laughs> stoic, masculine passion. Well, it's it's not showy. Yeah. It's not vibrant. It is... It's matter you, of fact. You've got a guy, yeah. the mechanic is very passionate about what he does, and he's so in tune with the car that when they're running, he's like, that doesn't sound quite right. Yeah. And then the only thing he knows to do in his free time is... I'm going to tinker with a car. I guess what I mean is they don't come across as arrogant as the other drivers in the film do. Uh, well, if you look at the encounters between driver and yeah. any other drive, any other car driver, he's his, a prick. His arrogance is one. He knows his car. Yeah. So, but also he seems like he has an ability to get under people's skin and, and affect t- their driving. Well, it turns out uh, it's not too hard to get under a car guy's skin no. by walking up to him and go, Does this piece of shit even go anywhere? Yeah. That's... And they go, what do you mean this piece of shit? And then they decide, oh, well, now the only thing I know to do is race you to prove it. Yeah. And I will put money down to do it. Mm-hmm. And so, and you see that at, at the end of the, the first race they have with just the random guy on the highway, on yeah. the like. They meet him at the burger shop. They go race on the road somewhere. Is this the green car? Yeah, this is like that green. Yeah. That's a... More sure a, looks fast, mister. That's more of a rat rod. Yeah, okay. But, you know, it's it's a very clean, just chopped car. It looks like Hot Wheels made a Model T. They take the, you know, there's no engine cover on it. The engine's totally exposed. It's got basically pipes straight off the engine, so it's loud as can be. Mm-hmm. They race what is a quarter on just blacktop just straight asphalt or concrete and when the driver wins the green car he just drives off he never comes back he just drives off in the distance yeah and i i think that's the same guy he runs into at the hotel bar yes that his uh wife leaves him and that was actually played by uh oh that was a rudolph Wurlitz, the screenwriter he plays that guy yeah okay the red-headed guy driving the green like rat rod so and it all in all like that that's cool for me to me um you know they're they're very passionate about racing mm-hmm. i mean it's it's what they do they don't have jobs yeah. their money solely comes from challenging people to races winning and for some reason with gto he he is uh i like to imagine that he killed the person who owned the gto and read well, the brochure that's something that bugged me with the whole film is that like they keep portraying them and how you would portray like a psychotic violent person now but it never really goes anywhere it just turns out that he's just kind of an insecure pussy but like there's moments in his performance where i'm like oh man is this guy dangerous is he gonna like snipe them the next time they pull over well and to me and that might be part of warren oates uh performance t- the beauty of gto is he tells a different story yes. to every single person. Steals to, valor a couple times. It's so like I try to make notes of several of his stories. Yeah. The first time when he picks up the guy in the suit, mm-hmm. he's a uh, experimental jet pilot. Yeah. And, you know, he's like you got gotta, shot down twice in Korea. He says um, he has this line. I can't remember exactly what it is, but he says, you know, you got to You get your thrills up in the air. You got to be able to get them ba- down on the ground, too. Yeah. Uh, and and the guy in the suit doesn't really respond to this conversation. You mean uh, Drew Carey in a cowboy hat? 
Yes. That's his first passenger. He's always picking up passengers because this guy is profoundly lonely and just needs someone to listen to his bullshit stories. And so Drew carrying a cowboy hat is just like, yeah, that's that's real cool. Yeah. And the guy goes, well, you know, I was an experimental pilot. And he yeah. just starts over. Yeah. He reads the brochure to him. The about, Drew Carey guy falls asleep and he just cycles back through the same story. He needs somebody to listen to him and acknowledge how cool he is. Okay, we're back again. Yeah, we are. We had a little technical difficulty there. Uh, as we were just talking, uh, Warren Oates picks up the Drew Carey in a cowboy hat. Yeah, you know, and I, I don't remember how much we lost. I think we were... We had talked about how Drew Carey in a cowboy hat would like fell asleep while he was talking and he would just cycle back through. Right. Yes. So we don't know anything about GTO. No. Um, what I like about him is he brings this chaotic energy to the show or to the movie. Yeah. It's both chaotic and like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Impotent. <laughs> yeah. It's sad. Yeah. You can tell this is a guy like either has way too much money and he's just a bored rich guy. Clearly doesn't have a family. Yeah, he's just a complete completely alone. Maybe his wife divorced him. Maybe something. You know, there's something that triggered him to be where he is. He does um, have the, like the flyest collection of sweaters though. And yeah, and he's got that cool like whiskey case in his trunk. Yeah. With glasses and various whiskeys. He's a cool guy. <laughs> well, uh, he would like you to think that he is. He does he checks the boxes for cool guy. Mm-hmm. And it's like his entire personality is... He just doesn't have the sauce. I'm checking the boxes. I, I know what a cool guy is. Mm. This is what cool guys like to hear. This is what cool guys talk about. This is what cool guys do. This is a cool guy car. This is a cool guy sweater. This is how cool guys drink Coke and drop it back in the little Coke rack in a way that spills Coke on your hands multiple times. Yeah, with three quarters of the Coke still being there. That pissed me <laughs> off the most. Like... The, the second beverage choice that pissed me off is whenever uh, James Taylor, as the driver, is drinking a glass of milk while eating a cheeseburger. Ugh, that's I'm, some that, psycho shit. I mean, that's school lunch. No. Yes, they always give you lunch, uh, milk for school lunch. That doesn't mean you what, gotta drink it. What's wilder? What's Get wilder, the chocolate milk, at least. What's wilder to me is, well, can we at least agree no strawberry milk for lunch? Yeah, that's fucked. Um, what's weirder to me is when GTO sits down, he's just like... I have a glass of water. Uh, I'll have a, a cheeseburger and a seltzer. applesauce. A- an Alcacessor. No, he asked for al- applesauce. No, he asked for Alcacessor. Oh. And she brings him a glass of water and a little Alcacessor in a yeah. pack and he drops it in his water. I thought he asked for applesauce. No. And I thought that was weird too. Like he didn't even look at the menu and just assume they had applesauce. I was like, oh, maybe in the 70s that was a more popular side dish. Well, I don't know. What's weirder to me is ordering Alcacessor from a restaurant. Yeah. Which, I mean, it seems like a thing restaurants might have. I mean, most of your wait staff is going to be fighting a hangover on any given day, so it's not that crazy to think that one of them had some Alka-Seltzer on them. But the fact that he ordered, he just sat down and he goes, I have a cheeseburger and an Alka-Seltzer. Yeah. And they're just like, no questions asked. I don't know how much an Alka-Seltzer costs at a restaurant. But a dime? I don't know. He doesn't care. Um, Money but, means nothing to this man. He gets Alkies no matter what the well, cost. It, you know what's interesting about this is, in Vanishing Point, we don't really talk about this and when we talked about Vanishing Point, but he's awake for like three days. Yes. We talk about his amphetamine use, but we don't really talk about the fact that he's awake it, for three days. He's awake for three days that we know yeah. of because he's coming off of a job as soon as the film starts and, and somebody, he doesn't sleep. And they're telling him that he needs to rest. Yeah. So who knows how long he's been awake, uh, which begs the question, maybe none of the events of Vanishing Point happen. <laughs> and this is, yeah, maybe none of it happened. <laughs> um, but in uh, Tulane Blacktop, they're also awake for days mm-hmm. because they've challenged 
challenge GTO to a cross-country race for pink slips. And they're supposed to meet, they're going to mail the pink slips to Washington, D.C. Yeah. And go get them. Now, do they ever mail it? Yeah, I don't really know. But Where they, do they officially start the race? Is that still in Texas? There's some. There's somewhere in the the midwest because they cross like yeah because the geography gets confusing because i think by the time they get the last big drag race event they go to is in memphis yeah and uh gto has already said that they he's beginning chased for three states which i think is actually just two states Mm -hmm. and so maybe they started in southern california and the official race begins in texas meaning they followed each other through new mexico and arizona i don't know I don't know. I, I imagine they probably somewhere in the, the southwest. Film, the film proper starts in California, I think. Somewhere in the southwest, they cross paths with GTO. Mm-hmm. And then they cross a, a couple of states. And uh, I think they're in like Oklahoma or something when they're Maybe. at the restaurant yeah. where he orders the Alka-Seltzer. And then they go to Memphis and the Chevy races in Memphis and then GTO runs off with the girl. Mm-hmm. So they're on their way to yeah. Washington, D.C. though. So we're taking, but they've been awake for days at this point because yeah. it's a, it's an endurance race. Mm-hmm. They do stop and rest a few times. Like I, I think the motel scene is before they start the race with uh, GTO, but then you see GTO gets a nap whenever he stops to get his carburetor replaced. Well, he falls he's, asleep. He's passed out drunk, he, yeah. Yeah, he, he passes out stealing the license plate off the truck at the garage. Yeah, because he sees the actual cool guy drivers doing that to their cars. Like, oh, I better do that too because, you know, I'm a real legit driver. Which is, again, you know, we're talking this. I, I didn't think about this at the time when we picked these movies, yeah. but they're both about existentialism. Yeah. And yeah, literally every passenger that GTO picks up sends him into an existential tailspin. <laughs> well, and he's he doesn't know like his identity is how do I be cool? Mm-hmm. And he looks at the driver and the mechanic as these guys are authentic racers. Yeah. And he wants to GTO wants to be a racer. So when he sees them go steal that license plate, he thinks, oh, authentic racers must steal license plates. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't know anything about the driver or the mechanic um, as far as their back tell their backstory goes. Yeah. So they may be on the run for something. We don't know. It's weird yeah. that he sw- they switch plates. Yeah, because um, they're, they're very like measured and calm when they're in between races, when they're just driving across the country. They don't. They ignore a lot of people that try to race them because they make the point that, you know, this is a drag car. It's more about the short term speed and they have to consider the longevity of their car. Whereas like in Vanishing Point, he's doing the opposite. Well, and when they talk about what what they're talking about with that car is it's a 454 with big fat tires. It's the transmission that's in it. And the gearing that's in it and the engine that are in it are all quarter mile engine like mm-hmm. components. Their goal is we're going to go quick in a quarter mile. So the car is not actually that fast. It's no. just quick. So it's quick in the quarter. And then so when you're on the highway and you have a, one of those cars fly past them, the the 55 Chevy probably can't go that much more than 110, 120. And these other cars can go past a little bit better. So it's all they, about the zero to 60 time. Well, it's the quarter mile time. So they're yeah. not going zero to 60 is part of that. They're running, you know, in the 90s and low 100s in the quarter. So, but that's about it for that car. Like, it's set up just, they, they have a yeah. car that's set up specifically for quarter miles. And so, when they're out on the highway, they're not, it's not a race car in the sense of a, if a Ferrari came by, yeah. they're not going to catch it. 
it's not the kind of car that you would think to do on a cross-country race either. Um, no, I mean, it, it's actually not uncommon for there to be drag racing events that are like bring, like you have to drive what you're going to race uh, so that it's not just like a pure all-out undrivable race car. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's kind of what they've built is uh, a, a car that you can drive to the racetrack and then run without being just full fledged yeah. has to be trailered because you can't drive it on the roadway. But it wouldn't be good for like a high speed chase like you would see in Vanishing Point. No, it wouldn't be. I mean, they don't have I mean, it, it's going to drink fuel. Mm hmm. I mean, it's going to be good if you were to take off, probably, but, you know, even then, it's going to have a hard time with traction in most places. It's And it's not a comfortable car, either. I mean, it's yeah. it's got real thin bucket seats. Like, mm-hmm. it's all stripped down. So, it's not a road trip car, by any means. No. So, before they make the arrangement for the race to D.C., we're introduced to the character known simply as the girl, which I don't think she contributed a whole lot to the film, personally. No, except for providing strife between the parties i yeah. will say that sh- you do hear her name at once maybe. yeah he like uh the driver references her last name towards the end of the film just out of nowhere but in the credits it's still listed as the girl yeah she's listed as the girl in the opening and closing yeah. credits also and- is it just me or maybe it's the aesthetic of the 70s but she looks super underage she looks like she's like 12 oh, i didn't get that i think that's just the 70s aesthetic she she's like we- literally like rosy cheeked and stuff and she's like kind of a an avatar for this dying uh hippie generation the last of the flower children yeah because when we we're introduced to her they're at a restaurant and she just gets out of this van yeah and jumps in their car while they're in the restaurant and when they get in she's just there and they're like okay that's cool. yeah in the 70s you can just kind of get in someone's car and hang out for a minute <laughs> but even the driver and mechanic they're very laissez about it like, yeah they don't care that she's there they you know she doesn't even have a seat there's no, no back seat in this car yeah no back seat She's like laying on top of tools. So yeah, it's it's weird. That's the seventies feel. You know, I think Vanishing Point has a lot of that, mm-hmm. and Two Lane Blacktop has a more condensed form of it. Yeah, and it's just represented by the girl. Also, it's funny that the film stars two famous musicians, and she's the only character that sings in the movie, and she's god fucking awful at it. <laughs> well, she's all her character again doesn't offer a whole lot. Um, she's not interesting. Yeah. Of course, GTO is very interested in her. You know, it's a younger woman. He's an older man. He wants her to think he's cool. Well, and she's with them. Yeah, she's with the driver and the mechanic initially. So he's going to want what they have. Like, at some point, he even... It's funny. Later on in the story, when he's talking to a different person he's picked up, he's like, yeah, I won this car racing a 55 Chevy. Yeah. And, you know, I Steals raced the guy Valor for, for the second time. I raced the guy for pinks. Uh, you know, actually, we're doing... There's a cross-country race. And then at another point, he says... I manage the guys driving the 55 Chevy. Like, there's this whole big... That's at the restaurant, actually, when yes. talking to... That's when they're in Arkansas, near the Memphis border. Yeah, that's right. And so, it's it's weird, because... Also, fuck those Arkansas guys talking shit about Tennessee. Yeah, it's just like... Your state is so shitty. Like, your <laughs> best city is West Memphis. Uh, it's so, it, it is weird that they just throw shade on Tennessee for no reason. And I don't say that just because that's where we're at. I mean, there is a lot of contention between the Southeast states. You know, we all kind of bully Mississippi, but Arkansas fucking check your shit, dude. Yeah. Who is our, I've never heard anybody say I'm going to Arkansas. No. Now no. people go to Tennessee. We got mountains. We got Pigeon Forge. Mm-hmm. Um, but Arkansas, what is I, that? Actually, I'll tell you about it. The most famous point in Arkansas is probably the border of Texas. <laughs> Arkansas. 
Arkansas, right. That's got a cool name. People don't know how to pronounce it sometimes. Or Texarkana, sorry. Yeah, Arkansas right. is the border with Kansas. Yeah, Texarkana. You, you're right. You're all, right. Your, gonna, all your big cities are named after other places that are cooler. I was going to let you just fly with... Uh, Arkansas, but yeah, but yeah, Texarkana. Like nobody cares about Arkansas. No, and it's like you're gonna hit, you're gonna beat up on Tennessee. It's like I used to spend summers in Little Rock because I had an aunt and uncle that lived on the Air Force Base there. Shit. So you know, it, it's I think that Tulane Blacktop is way more interesting than Vanishing Point. To me, Tulane Blacktop just kind of meanders and doesn't really go anywhere. And usually that doesn't bother me in a movie, but I just nothing really grabbed me with this one. I don't know how you can say that Tulane Blacktop meanders and then act like Vanishing Point is better. Because Vanishing Point is only meander. No, it's literally he's like a straight the, shot. Except for the time he's just out in the desert driving around in circles. Yeah, avoiding the cops. He's not avoiding the cops at one point. He's just drawing lines in the desert, which may be... So which the visually was fall. very cool. It, okay, it can be cool and dumb. <laughs> uh, like, okay, I get it. It's He's making these lines. Maybe, I, the only thing I can figure is he's doing that to confuse the helicopter. Yeah, or he himself is lost because he hasn't met the prospector character yet. Which maybe is not even real because somehow he guides into a snake charmer. Anyway, doesn't matter. Dumb movie. <laughs> um, but Tulane, Tulane Blacktop has an A and B point. They're going to Washington, yeah. D.C. You've got the same setup. It's just that it's Except about it's a race. Interesting. It's about a race that never happens. Yeah. It, well, I, I mean, in Vanishing Point, he's just racing the clock and himself. Yeah, and, that's compelling to me. And in Tulane Blacktop, they they are racing, and while racing, they also stop and do other races. Yeah, and there are there's also like a weird, maybe not buddy buddy, but like some kind of like commiseration between the two parties between GTO and the driver. Like they're sympathetic to him to a degree. I, I think they, you know, because there's a scene where GTO gets pulled over. And yeah. the driver pulls over in front of the cop car and gets out and he goes, yeah, I'm glad you got this guy. He's a maniac. He flew up on me honking mm-hmm. and flashing me past me super fast. And he was like, doing 90. I he, think he's on something. Yeah. And the cops like, come back here. Is this the guy? And he's like, yeah, that's him. He's dangerous. Yeah. And then driver gets back in his car and peels out mm-hmm. and just makes this big ruckus right in front of the cops. And then GTO comes up to him later and goes, I don't need your help. Don't yeah. patronize me. Yeah. Which is not how you use that word. I, I do remember him saying no, that. No, I, think he I don't says, need don't, to be patronized. I, I think he says, don't condescend me. No, he says patronize. Does he? Yeah. I know at one point he's like, don't condescend me yeah. because somebody has the audacity. You put me on. Somebody has the audacity to like explain something to him or yeah. do things in a way that he doesn't quite get. And he goes, yeah. are you putting me on? I don't <laughs> yeah. don't condescend me. But then they offer him a hard boiled egg and it seems like he you know, takes it. Yeah, everything's cool. Who the fuck takes a hard boiled egg that <laughs> somebody just pulls out of the back of a car? I mean, I like hard boiled eggs, but yeah. Shell. It's like if somebody offered you a hard boiled Yeah, if somebody offered you a hard boiled egg and it was in the shell, it's like Yeah, that's okay. like roofie if, rules. Like you don't trust an unpeeled hard boiled egg. I want to peel that myself. If somebody offers you one that's already peeled and they just seemingly pull it out of nowhere. They just dip the hard-boiled egg in blotter ass. Or it's like dirty. (laughs) Or just dirty. Like it's in the back of a race car. It might just be dirty. What if it was a soft-boiled egg? (laughs) But he eats it. Yeah. And then they eat them. So, I mean, like, they're they're not tricking him. It's just a weird thing to do. Mm -hmm. And then when they offer him a hard-boiled egg, he offers them whiskey out of the back of his car. Yeah. He does have, like, a nice little bar cart in his trunk. I mean, it's cool. I mean, he's he seems like a nice enough guy who wants to be liked more than anything in the world. Yeah, just profoundly insecure and annoying. 
Yes. And a liar. And I mean, I think the beauty of his character is you don't know where he's coming from. You don't know what he's doing. I yeah. like to imagine that he murdered somebody, stole See, the car. Yeah. And he's just on the way. And it's like, but I you kept waiting for matter. that shoe to drop and it never did. He doesn't have to. That's the point of it. It kind of does because you end up walking away with from the film just like, well, I guess that guy's just kind of a fucking loser that's going to continue to do this. Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. his character. Like, Both parties go their separate way at but, the end. They never get their race. But we know that guy. Yeah. You know, um, and to be fair, I don't know if the driver or mechanic were actually interested in racing this guy or they were just saying, hey, buddy. Yeah. Let's race for pinks. We'll mail it. It's possible they were just fucking with him the whole time because they don't seem particularly interested in the GTO. No, they they drive it. I mean, I know they, they recognize it's a cool car, but yeah. that's not them. That's the GTO for yeah. them is aesthetic over form uh, over substance. And their race car is absolutely substance over aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think one of the first like funny lines that the driver nails the GTO guy with that really sets him over the edge is whenever he like accuses them of like following him for like two or three states and he goes, oh, I don't know, that's a pretty common car. I see a lot of them. <laughs> I don't think so I've seen good. you before, dude. It's yeah, such a good burn. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's cool, but you know, you see a lot of them. They all kind of run together for me. <laughs> Speaking of other lines. <laughs> from the movie that really stood out to me um make it three yards motherfucker and we got a race <laughs> yeah he says is that like a three says, yard advantage he says make it three yards motherfucker and we'll have ourselves an automobile race yeah <laughs> I, I don't know. i guess in a drag race the three yard advantage is significant no he's talking about money 300 is what they bit they put on the race okay so i've never heard yards as a hundred dollars yeah i don't know where that comes from at first, I thought it said three yards, and I was like, no, it has to say three large. And then I looked up the line yeah, well, from three the large would be three grand. Well, it makes more sense than yards. Yeah. Well, see, I thought he was literally giving him like a three-yard head start, like a car length. <laughs> no, I, I think that it's, he says, uh, make it three yards as in, because the guy says, we'll put a hundred bucks on it, something like that. Yeah. He goes, make it three yards. Then they, because they talk earlier, they had $300 to bid with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so somehow yards is a hundred bucks. Yeah. I don't know how, but then the, uh, one of the other quotes that the GTO guy says to him when they're talking about racing is I could suck you right up my, my tailpipe. tailpipe. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like it's propositioning him for gay sex. <laughs> and it's like, oh my guy, if you're winning the race, the exhaust is going out your tailpipe, not in. Man, if I were to tug these britches down just even a little bit, you wouldn't be able to help yourself but get up my tailpipe, dude. <laughs> it's like in my mind, he's you like... You couldn't resist. It's like, if I could run this engine backwards, I'd suck you up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess, doesn't the sucking happen with, like, the grill, the front of the car? Yeah, you're not going to suck things through your tailpipe. <laughs> I'll suck uh, you up my tailpipe. Yeah, but... I- I just, I heard, I heard that and it just kills me because that's the thing about it. He doesn't understand cars. Yeah. He understands the brochure for the GTO. And clearly the driver doesn't understand money. (laughs) Well, he, yeah, he does. Oh, except for you saying yards. Calling it yards. He calls it weird stuff. He understands money because they make it. Yeah, I guess. They win all their races. But, you know, I think in this, this movie is just, it's actual it's a car movie with actual races. There, it, there's drag races throughout, which to me are interesting. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah, they don't get where they're going, but they also have the, the end scene is the driver running the car. Against an El Camino. Against an El Camino. Uh, it's like a... 60, SS El Camino, It's like it? a 67 to the 69 El Camino with... Uh, it's an SS. It's got the 454 in it. It's a real clean car. And they're... Run, so it's 454 versus 454. Now, the El Camino is going to be all heavy and compared to this, this 55 Chevy that's been gutted, but whatever. Yeah. So, but he's running him, and then it's like the celluloid starts to burn cigarette up, burns yeah you know and, and it's in the, slow motion the sound no, cuts out yeah there's no sound there's a you can hear it a little bit yeah. but it is so a cool for, shot how you see like the shaker on the hood move side to side in slow motion well that's not a shaker oh really that's just a cowl for the cowl car. intake the carbs are sticking up through the hood so they've cut the hood and put a big cowl on it so mm. they fit they don't run air breathers though which is or air cleaners which is weird uh because they're just going to suck whatever they want down yeah. in the engine but regardless um you don't really know how two lane blacktop ends other than either this is like the destiny of his life is he's going to keep doing this mm-hmm. or he may have died in that in that race i think it was just like this film was a chapter in these three characters lives is how i took it and the film has a very documentary type feel to it yeah. Uh, you can tell the extras weren't actors. Like in the scene where the girl's panhandling, the people are reacting very genuinely. Uh, and also, uh, to the point I was making earlier with how they both use licensed music differently, in Tulane Blacktop, anytime there's licensed music playing, there's a source for it. There's the cassette player, the car radio, or something. There's no score in between, which also offers it lends it more to being more documentary and grounded and indie style. Not as slick a production as Vanishing Point. But I can see its merits. I watched it twice, which I only watched Vanishing Point uh, once. I watched it twice because I thought I was being unfair to it the first time I watched it. And then you realized you weren't being unfair? Yeah, I realized I was correct the first time. <laughs> well, look, I think that Tulane Blacktop offers a substance over form movie. They talk about the same subject matter. A, a man in the open road in the 70s. It's got the same kind of counterculture stuff going on. Mm-hmm. And the dying the dying off of the hippie culture, whatever. But to me, it offers more substance. It's... It's a movie about racing. They actually race. You have this interesting character that follows along with them and offers this back and forth. Uh, it doesn't Act it's, circles around them. It's less fantastic. Yeah, well, I mean I, that's what I liked about Vanishing Point though is it's. I don't know how to really phrase it. It's in the comparison between the two that I haven't already said. Uh, I think a lot of what Tulane Blacktop loses for me is. James Taylor and Dennis uh, Wilson's performances. Well, they're not actors. Yeah, and you can tell to a degree. I think Monty Hellman did a good job of using their limited skills. Like, James Taylor didn't need to be that great of an actor for this role because he's fairly quiet. He only really talks about cars. It's whenever people try to talk to him about things that aren't cars, he kind of shuts down and gets cold. Like, whenever uh, GTO's talking to him about being a location scout for movies, he's like, hey, man, I don't really care. I don't want to hear about that. (laughs) (laughs) what do you mean you don't care and don't want to hear about that it's your problem not mine dude it's so good he does have the one little dialogue about uh cicadas with the girl yeah and she says wow we got better lives than the cicadas you're boring me yeah and then he just he's like all right don't get don't get a splinter because they're sitting on a wooden fence yeah then he goes to mess with the car like it's and then she gets in with gto and starts playing music in his car like it, it it's weird She's this hippie element to it, but again, I don't think she's that important. But I just find the movie overall more enjoyable. Now, Mm -hmm. is it the most exciting movie I've ever watched? Absolutely not. 
I think it's a better car movie. Well, I think if we're comparing them as car movies, I think Vanishing Point is better because it's a car chase movie, and that's more interesting to me as opposed to a race movie. Well, You're more into drag culture than I am. Drag racing, sorry. <laughs> I don't know. I'm maybe more into drag culture generally than you. Sashay and walk away. S- Samantha loves drag culture, and she watches all the RuPaul's. Or, uh, yeah. No, not RuPaul's. What's the one on uh, yeah, Shutter? We, oh, uh, the Boulette Brothers, Dragula yeah. or whatever. Yeah, she loves Dragula. Yeah, but yeah, RuPaul's canceled because he's heavily invested in fracking. <laughs> but I think that Vanishing Point is one of the least interesting car chase movies ever. I there, disagree. There's about one good scene where it's like an active chase. The rest of the time is him just driving around. Presumably, the cops are somewhere behind him, mm-hmm. and you're off gallivanting in the desert doing stupid stuff. Well, I think, like, Cleavon Little's character does a good job in those transitions. I like the moments that we spend with his character. Like, it doesn't always have to be on the Challenger, even though I think it does spend a good enough time on the Challenger and its actions. I don't know. I, I think, to me, it just... Vanishing Point doesn't do enough with the car. It's got too much other stuff going on, and Tulane Blacktop is very car-focused. You Really, the, two, the main characters in this are the GTO and the 55 Chevy. Yeah. What did you think of James Taylor's performance and uh, Dennis uh, Wilson? I think that Dennis Wilson's is a little bit better. Yeah, he's uh, the more gregarious of the two. So some of his just reactions to other people talking are like show he have he has better chops. Um, you know, but neither one of them. But I think that plays into it is yeah. If you had an actor, you might have characters that were overacted. Mm-hmm. These guys are very bland. Yeah, they are they. It's and the beauty. I think one of the beauties of Tulane Blacktop, and part of it has to do with it, this is the artistic part of it is mm-hmm. nobody having names. Yeah. So everybody's personality is really just summed up in the role they play. GTO is a flashy guy. Mm-hmm. He's he's the GTO car. Yeah. He's an affluent hobbyist. The mechanic is. I don't even know if he's a hobbyist. If he's just a guy who bought a car because he decided he's going to be a race car driver. Yeah. Um, but the mechanic is just a mechanic. He doesn't have really anything else going for him. Mm-hmm. And he keeps most of his dialogue related to working on the car. And then James Taylor, whose performance is, you know, it's his acting is lackluster. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to fault him too much for that because he's not an actor. It's like Lester, but, but it's not dissimilar from the Barry Newman's performance as Kowalski. They both do the same kind of quiet, stoic, yeah. uh, what we would now call the literally me subgenre of film, a.k.a. Sigma male cinema. <laughs> well, you know, with James Taylor's character, for the first part of the movie, you go, mm-hmm. I wonder if he actually speaks. Yeah. Because you don't hear from him really at all. He doesn't respond to everyone's questions. He doesn't respond to a lot of statements. Unless it pertains to cars. Yeah, and and he drives, he teaches the girl how to drive stick, and she sucks at it, and then he agrees that she's never going to be able to do it. Yeah. Um, Yeah, you're probably right. His one time attempting like a serious conversation with her is met with just disappointment. So I think overall, he doesn't do a bad job acting. He's He's used well. He's just very flat. His affect is flat. And in some regard, that's the character. He is just the driver. Mm-hmm. I think the lack of names plays into the fact that these people don't have personality outside of what they're doing. Yeah. And I think it's just very, it's very minimalist. And I like how car focused it is. Yeah. You can definitely see like the Robert Altman type influence on this film with the very naturalistic, almost documentary type of uh, approach 
that it takes. And I don't know what that means. Uh, Robert Altman is the guy that made MASH the film and then later MASH the TV series, but that was the first time that acting got less theatrical and more uh, day-to-day, like how people actually act. Gotcha. So he he's the reason that we act like Nicolas Cage is not the greatest actor of a generation. Uh, well, there's Nicolas Cage, Cage, like we all think, but Nicolas Cage is also good at doing subtle stuff too. It's just he's not as known for it. I just mean he's really he embodies that yeah that grandiose stage acting where things have to be exaggerated because you don't have cameras to magnify. Yeah. Well, I would say his style of like exaggerating acting doesn't necessarily come from theater it comes from kind of this era of filmmaking the 70s exploitation film era yeah i mean i think that the end result is kind of the same as he has yeah. an exaggerating acting style that is not congruent with the modern cinema mm-hmm. of really subdued acting yeah unless you build a film around him where the point is for him to be that way yeah but like i mean i think with like con air he does a fantastic job yeah he's pretty subdued in that film he's not over the top but I like him when he's over the top. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, I think that's a good role for him. I mean, no one said the the two sides of the Nicolas Cage coin are bad. You know, um, if you can't handle me at my Mandy, then you don't deserve me at my Con Air. That's true. Con Air is fantastic. If you though. can't handle me at leaving Las Vegas, you don't deserve me at Face Off. Yeah. But, uh, well, and to bring this back around to where we're at, I, if I were going to pick one of these two movies and it be the, like, it's like, I have to watch this at least once or twice a year. Uh-huh. I'm always, I'm going to pick Tulane Blacktop every time. Okay. I'd probably pick Vanishing Point. Uh, if you were going to show a car movie to a normie that's not a car person which of the two would you pick two lane blacktop i think it's more technical i think it it's more about cars uh, it's more about drag racing you don't think uh, vanishing points at least more accessible no because i don't i get lost in vanishing point like trying to figure out why we're doing what we're doing it's See, not a complicated I, movie that's how i felt about two lane blacktop I mean, Tulane Blacktop is simple. They're just well, out so of the vanishing point. Racing. Well, two, vanishing point's not all that simple. It's got all these subplot or these side quests yeah. going on about the snake charmers and the farmer or the the prospector, the the drugs distributor and his naked girlfriend. Yeah. It's got the radio plot. Like, there's all these sub things going on mm-hmm. that to me distract from the car movie. And Tulane Blacktop is just. Yeah. That probably has something movie. to do with it being written by a novelist. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, and I'm not saying Vanishing Point is bad. Mm. It's just not as good as I'd always hoped it would be. Yeah. Because I thought it was going to be, and maybe this is this is me because, you know, I saw Fast and Furious before I saw <laughs> Vanishing Point. So when, you know, Fast and Furious comes out 2001, 2002? Uh, I think it's, I think it's 99. Is it? It might be 2000. So, you know, Fast and Furious comes out when I'm a kid mm-hmm. and, you know, you watch Fast and Furious and for all of its faults... Fast and Furious. It's at least is, a car movie. Fast and Furious is one of the most influential car movies to ever come out. It created an entire ricer culture. Yeah. Um, it created, you know, drag racing culture. It revitalized it. It didn't create it. I shouldn't say created. Do you want to explain how ricer is not a racist term? Because I had that explained to me once. Oh. It's an acronym, isn't it? Um. Yeah, it's like race-inspired car. Um, I, f- I forget exactly what it stands for. but Especially it's just like a regular idea- sedan that looks sporty. Like it, It's the idea of taking a vehicle and putting race-inspired components on it. Like a big spoiler. To big spoilers, ground effects, uh, paint jobs. To really capture that Fast and Furious aesthetic of 
bright most of them are bright and yeah. vibrant inspired by 90s culture and it's just about really it's often used as a derogatory term for a car yeah. to say that you've put form over function you take a car that isn't really that fast and you make it look like a race car without doing any of the race car stuff to it yeah just a bunch of body work on it, a honda it's stolen valor yeah it's like you do all this stuff to a car so when people see it, they go, damn, look at that race car. And at the end of the day, you've got a base model Honda Civic that's got body kits and big wings on the back of it. And you've got it slammed and the camber's all crazy. So the wheels stick out at odd angles. Like, you know, there, there's a whole and there's subcultures to that. Yeah. But there's a great come town bit about how the first couple of Fast and Furious movies were made just for Hispanic teenagers. <laughs> Now, could you just imagine if you had both of those cars? So, Fast and Furious, The Fast and Furious came out in 2001. 2001, okay. So, you know, that movie, for all of its faults... Pre-9-11 or post-9-11? Because oh, it matters. It's very know. new metal, so I'm thinking it's pre. I think that might have been a summer movie. Well, it was definitely produced pre-9-11. Yeah. Released June 22nd. Okay. So, that was the golden era before everything changed. I think me and my dad saw it in theaters when it came out. But regardless, I mean, Fast and Furious is it is the epitome of modern car movies. Yeah. In in some regard, and it makes it all the more worse that the franchise itself stopped being car movies. Yeah, I mean, it, it is what it is. I mean, everybody kind of likes to look back at Fast and Furious and talk about how how bad it is. You know, there's a bunch of donut videos that talk about the inaccuracies of Fast and Furious, mm -hmm. but the Fast and Furious movie is an introduction into car culture it gets a lot of stuff wrong it gets some stuff right but it's interesting it makes cars cool and when you look at vanishing point i mean it's different styles i mean early yeah. 2000s cinema versus mm -hmm. early 70s you've got different cultures going on but when after when you watch vanishing point to me it's just boring and maybe that is because i saw fast and furious well before i ever saw vanishing point You've seen the Mountain Dewification of the car film, and it's more stimulating. I would say that Fast, the Fast and Furious, is maybe the start of the Mountain Dewification. I mean, it's the soundtrack the, is exclusively new metal. It's not the like the Mountain Dewification of it, but it's the start of it for sure. But yeah, if I were going to tell you another uh, theme that ties the two, they both use the F slur. They do. Uh, <laughs> not my favorite thing about them, but. And also the use in Fast and Furious doesn't even make sense. No, nobody was like, <laughs> it's like you're hitting on my, the girl that I have a crush on. So I'm going to call you the F slur well, and called, push you. He also calls him the F slur, like in the context of him ordering the tuna. It's like, okay, tuna sandwich, pussy joke, easy layup. But no, I guess that was not there for the screenwriter of the Fast and Furious. It's just like, no, I'm just going to call him gay. Yeah, I don't. It's it's the early 2000s. Yeah. The rules were a little different. Watch then. your, watch your, watch your back. The rules were so different then. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I think I'd recommend The Fast and Furious over The Vanishing Point. Strong disagree. Um, I think The uh, the Fast and Furious is at least interesting. I think Vanishing Point is very interesting. But like I said, that's a time capsule for a period that I'm already fond of. Which... And this is the the simpleton approach to it. If I watch a movie and I have to be fond of that time period and I have to be aware of all the, the nuance of post-hippie culture to appreciate the movie, you know, it's just not that interesting to me. I don't like it and I'm not going to watch it. 
I'll tell you another thing setting-wise between the two is I like in Vanishing Point that the entirety of the film is desert, whereas you get like a variety of locations in Tulane, and usually that's something I would say makes it better, but I think just the desert aesthetic throughout the film makes it a little more cohesive to me, whereas you get like varying locations with Tulane Blacktop. You get kind of like rocky, waterfall-y type areas when they're around Arkansas and stuff. You get, like we were saying, like the flatter parts of like... uh Oklahoma, presumably, we were talking. Somewhere. I, yeah, somewhere in the Midwest. I don't know. But, you know, I, it, to me, I saw Vanishing Point first. And like I said, I sought it out, was disappointed. I saw Tulane Blacktop. And it's not the most exciting movie ever, but I think it's a it's a both 1971 films, both <laughs> about cars. And I think Tulane Blacktop emerges as the more accessible and interesting one. Now, maybe it's more accessible to me because... I already know some of the car stuff, and it's actually not gonna, as accessible to the general audience. Yeah, I but, could see why it would be more appealing to someone that's like a gearhead. But at the same time, the the mechanical aspects of why Tulane Blacktop is more interesting is very similar to the counterculture and 70s aesthetic stuff that's required to like Vanishing Point. So mm-hmm. and I think in some regard, maybe they're not accessible to anybody. Maybe. Unless you're nuanced. Yeah. And you, you really just like the very specific things that each movie offers. They're very um, similar movies, but both executed very differently. And, you know, they're representative of car culture in some regard, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think they're probably something that should be in the catalog of any car enthusiast who likes car yeah. movies. I think they're both worth checking out. But, yeah, I don't think you're gonna... I don't think I hate Tulane as much as you hate Vanishing Point. And I, I think my hatred for Vanishing Point is based on the disappointment of Vanishing Point mm-hmm. because of what I, I expected it to be versus what it is. Well, I can only imagine how disappointing the 1997 version, which is on YouTube, <laughs> is starring Vigo Mortensen. You know, it PG-13 might, also. It might be worth it for a little small episode if we watch that. Minisode. And then <laughs> compare it. And then you're going to be really upset when I say I like the 97 version better. It sounds like you've already made up your mind that you're going to like it better. I've not seen it, but I, I like it better. <laughs> that's got Viggo Mortensen in it. I mean, that's a big check for me. I don't it know is. that I've seen Viggo Mortensen in a bad movie, but I feel like this might break that. All right, that's on the to-do list then. We can compare that one with Fast and Furious since they're closer in era. Oh, I don't. <laughs> but anyway, I, I don't walk away from this one going... These are two. One of these movies is something that I would never want to watch ever again. I mean, I, I can watch Vanishing Point. I think it's boring. Mm-hmm. Earlier, I said that it's. I'd rather watch Bad Boy Bubby. Um, and that's a bit of an exaggeration. Um, I don't think Vanishing Point's really that bad. It's just disappointing to me, and it's not my favorite. It just got overhyped by pop culture, and I kind of felt that a bit too. But yeah, the number of people who go, have you not, have you seen Vanishing Point? You should watch Vanishing Point. You'd really like Vanishing Point. Did it live up to how it was spoke about in Death Proof? No, not for me <laughs> at least. But I still enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a solid movie. There's nothing inherently wrong about it. I find it to be a little nonsensical and boring. But if that's the worst I have to say about a movie, then fine. Uh, at least there's no incest like Bad Boy Bubby. There's no cat murder like Bad Boy Bubby. There's no rape scenes like Bad Boy Bubby. There's no weird people taking advantage of the mentally disabled like Bad Boy Bubby. Well, there is kind of a rape scene in Vanishing Point, or an attempted rape. You're right. There's that attempted rape, but it's he gets to be and the that, hero and stop it. That one hitchhiker in Tulane Blacktop, uh, played by Harry Dean Stanton, like goes to like give a uh, 
GTO a hand job and he like freaks out on him. To be fair, that may be part of um, just hitchhiker culture. Yeah. Grass, gas, or ass. Nobody and rides for free. It's like you pick up this young guy on the side of the road and there's like a... I think that was a more like insulting like gay stereotype than the ones in uh, the couple in Vanishing Point. The way it's like, oh, come on. Can't we still be friends? You can't kick me out now. I think he really just wanted a ride. Oh, man, it's raining. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, GTO got really... I mean, I, I get... It would be upsetting if somebody grabbed you, but it, it's implied that he tried it again. Oh, I just saw him put his hand on his leg yeah, the one time. I think so. And then he goes, why don't you let me stay in the ride? I won't do it again. And he's like, okay. And then they ride yeah. for a ways. And it's like another scene where it's raining. And he kicks him out. And he's like, get out. And he's like, oh, well, I promise I, this time I mean it. I won't do it again. Oh. And I, it's like, maybe they do make yeah. him a little bit more of a predator than they should. Maybe he was a predator. I might have missed the line and just kind of assumed he had been stewing on it the first well, incident. I th- I don't think it's clear. Yeah. When he kicks him out, the, the, when he actually kicks him out, it, it's like, for some reason to me, it's implied that there was another occurrence. But I don't mm-hmm. know if they flat out say it. Well, to be fair to the hitchhiker, I mean, GTO is wearing a very bright ascot this whole movie. So I would assume he probably wanted to hitch up from a guy, too. GTO's a uh, presumably rich guy driving around in a very flamboyant car. Mm. and picking up men on the side of the road, I think it's fair to assume at least twice that he's down for that. Yeah. I mean, the only and female... he's hard to get. Yeah, the only female passengers he picks up, aside from the girl where she jumps back and forth between the cars, is the old lady and the little girl that he takes to the funeral home, and he starts to tell one of his bullshit stories, and the lady just cuts him off. He's like, her parents died in an accident, and he's like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. They got killed by a city car. Yeah. And he's like, he goes, like this one. Yeah. And he's like, you can drive this car in the city or the country. She's like, it's a city car. <laughs> and he just doesn't know what to do with somebody not caring about his stories and not liking mm-hmm. his cars. I'll tell you one, another funny thing that happens in both of them is that they both kind of talk about Detroit as this mythical land. I mean, to be fair, that time period, Detroit was a mythical land where... But to hear it now in 2020 and think about what Detroit looks like now, especially after watching Barbarian, which is set in Detroit. Well, you know, it's like you look back at Detroit in that time period and it's the heyday of muscle mm-hmm. Amer- the big three of american automotive manufacturers are pumping out some of the coolest cars that's ever that have ever been invented and that was like the peak like detroit was booming it was a happening place it was probably safe <laughs> and then it's like all right what are we going to do well the gas crisis oil embargoes yeah. emissions re- regulations and then you know nafta, NAFTA moving everything out of Detroit and you just you end up with this rust of a city the rust belt I like how we both just hit NAFTA at the same time I was like oh yeah outsourcing NAFTA you know we you hit NAFTA everything goes out overseas or to Mexico and mm-hmm. automobile manufacturing in the US dies and so does Detroit so yeah. you look at Detroit and it's like there's nostalgia there of this is at one point in time America was an automotive industrial powerhouse and now it's just a Detroit's a specter of what used to be yeah. So. Uh, another city that kind of works in the opposite in Vanishing Point is how gross and shitty Denver looks in the beginning before it's like a cool, hip weed city. You mean before gentrification? Yes. <laughs> yeah, it turns Before out, white money. Before white people decide, wouldn't it be cool if I kicked out the people who live here and make the values of everything go up? Mm-hmm. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, but at least the part of Denver you see is like the shady underbelly. Yeah. But as this soon as he pulls guy, out of that garage, that Challenger's dirty just by driving through the puddles in Denver. I will say there's some incongruity in Vanishing Point where they switch between cars and scenes and they're not as dirty. It's not as dirty as it was. Oh, in the really? Fire. Continuity errors. Yeah. Like, eh, it, it, that is what it is. It's hard to not have that when yeah. you shoot movies over multiple days and you're wrecking multiple of the same car you know it's out of order i mean if you can't if people can't get it right with a whiskey glass about how much ice or how much whiskey's in it Mm -hmm. it's hard to believe you know it's easy to believe you could mess up with a car but suddenly this actor has a five o'clock shadow you know but i i noticed that i don't Mm -hmm. i didn't really count that against vanishing point that's just something that happens yeah Yeah, i mean i don't know what else there's to say about them yeah go watch fast and furious instead (laughs) please don't i'm just kidding i'd say if they if either of these sound appealing, I mean, check them both out. You make an opinion on it. I think these two are probably the the most on the fence of the movies that we've done so far. Mm-hmm. At least as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, thus far we've had a pretty consensus uh, on like the movies we do and don't like. And I think for the most part, my opinion is going to be consistent with a lot of people's opinions. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think many people are going to enjoy Bad Boy Bubby. Yeah. Uh, but I think anybody, if you have any interest in these two movies, like you, you're not wrong to pick Vanishing Point over Tulane Blacktop or Tulane Blacktop over Vanishing Point. It's just going to be preference. Mm-hmm. But now, what about Tulane Blacktop? And out under the bow, we get them squeezing skirts going hot. Yeah. Yeah, what? Yeah. Well, it been another episode of the Knob and Sim present. I've been your host, Matt. Um, and I've been your host, Michael. Oh, we'll catch y'all next time, folks. Y'all bonjour now. And that Creole accent is the devil, Bobby Boucher.